I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm John Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow, anti-The Happening podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched the film adaptation of Mark Millar's 2003 comic book, Wanted. I have much, much to say about that book. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I have another pretty packed week this week really finishing off the the glut of movies that I ended up holding just to make the MCU episodes move a little bit faster. We start off with a movie that I saw in the cinemas this week, a very strange movie called Crimes of the Future. Uh, it is a, I don't even know what you call it, I suppose a science fiction drama directed by David Cronenberg, although it is sort of trending towards outright weird fiction at a certain point. It's set in a sort of vaguely dystopian future, humanity seems to be evolving. Our pain threshold is all gone, and some people are starting to just spontaneously grow new organs that don't seem to really do anything, but we just sort of grow them where they weren't there before. And technology has now advanced enough that surgery is pretty easy. Wounds are healed very quickly with, you know, cauterization technology and all this sort of stuff. But basically, all of this combined has turned into a weird performance art where because you've got these organs and because you've got the lack of pain and because you've got the healing technology, basically, there are a lot of artists who are performing live surgery on themselves or or mutilating themselves as performance art. And if the movie follows a little while in the lives of two of such artists, Saul, played by Viggo Mortensen, and Caprice, played by Leah Sadu. This is absolutely bizarre. Like, it's super esoteric and unusual. There's not even really a story. I mean, some, some stuff happens, but for the most part, it just lets you stew in the uncomfortable world that Cronenberg has come up with. He almost seems to be talking about his own art, He's talking about the nature of art, you know. There, there are conversations in this movie about the validity of these pieces of performance art. You know, is it really art, just cutting yourself? And it seems almost as if Cronenberg is making an analogy to his own sort of body horror films in the past. Uh, certainly Saul, the Viggo Mortensen character, seems like he might be a stand-in for Cronenberg. You, you get the impression that if Cronenberg could cut himself open for the enjoyment of his audiences in real life, he'd at the very least consider it. Mm. <laughs> he is a weird one. Well, yes, he is. And he returns to some of that weirdness. I mean, he he can't help but getting distracted by some of the sort of taboo sexual fetishes. Like, he sees the opportunity in this movie to return to some of the areas that he went with in Crash, and he goes for it. The idea of these people or a few people getting sexual pleasure out of these surgeries, either witnessing them or or wanting them performed on themselves. It's an extremely graphic movie, both in terms of not sex, but nudity, and in terms of, like, grisliness of seeing these operations. But uh, it has a lot of ideas. I will say that its whole idea of human evolution is a little muddy, and the, the themes that it's trying to thread in there... It doesn't weave with the narrative super well, but the design of this 
world, this future world, is pretty incredible. It's almost HR Giga-esque. It's very sort of biotech, organic kind of things where all of these things, these this all of this newfangled medical technology almost seems like it's a living, breathing creature and there's something very cosmic and uncomfortable about all that. But other than that, I mean, it's a very believable, bleak future. It's a low-tech Blade Runner-y kind of future. Like, you don't have the flying cars or all of the neon, but it's sort of that everyone living on top of each other, everything's a little bit bleak and overpopulated and stuff like that. Outside of the performance surgery and all of that stuff, you can kind of squint and see, yeah, that could be a direction that uh, is believable in 100 years, 150 years, hopefully after I'm dead. But uh, Mortensen is fantastic as the lead character. You get a very good performance by Don McKellar in a supporting role. Uh, Kristen Stewart is in the movie, but she's barely in it. I mean, it really does seem like the kind of role that you just take because you want to work with the director. But I think at the end of the day, as weird as it is, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. It's not really a movie you enjoy. I mean, I did find a weird moment of self-awareness sitting in the theatre watching this with this. I mean, it's not playing at my local theatre. I had to go into the city to a more specialised cinema to see it. So it's this well-heeled crowd of of film people sitting there watching this very unusual movie. And as part of me that's sitting there is like, you know, never have I been among so many like-minded weirdos. But um, I find it compelling and I enjoy how esoteric it is. I enjoy the swing that it's taking. I have no concept of how you would figure out if you would appreciate that. I can't recommend it to anyone because... Frankly, how can I, you know, your own capacity to appreciate this movie is as much a mystery to me as an unsexualized wound apparently is to David Cronenberg. But at home, I watched a bunch of movies, starting off with a loose trilogy of films made by the BBC about Margaret Thatcher. I say loose trilogy because they weren't made with the intention of connecting to each other, but they were bundled together in a DVD set called The Rise and Fall of Margaret Thatcher, which I own a copy of and have watched. Of course you do. We start off here with Margaret Thatcher, The Long Walk to Finchley, which is a satirical dramedy directed by Niall McCormick. It is, like all of these, a BBC TV movie. Just hearing that title, I'm like, God, I hope it's satire. (laughs) It follows a young Margaret Thatcher, played by Andrea Riseborough, trying to enter politics and her struggles, her decade-long struggle, actually, to find a a seat to be pre-selected for, given the old boys club that politics was at the time. Look, I'm no Margaret Thatcher fan. My politics preclude me from being a Margaret Thatcher fan in any sense. But this is really revolting, the way that it approaches her as a human being. It's so smarmy. The jokes are just cheap shots. It wants to have it both ways. It wants to acknowledge the misogyny that a woman entering politics in this period underwent and the way that she as a person fought back against that and overcame that. But at the same time, it wants to partake in every misogynistic narrative about powerful women that it can possibly think of that she's cold, that she's scheming, that she cares about her career more than her family, that she has an almost robotic, psychopathic lack of human emotion. It is every working woman thing, stereotype, negative stereotype under the in the book. I mean, she is depicted as 
lying in a hospital bed after giving birth to her twin children, talking about what great props they're going to be for her political career now. I mean, it is just taking it too far. Mm. And it just invents stuff. It suggests, without any evidence, I looked it up afterwards, it appears to just be nonsense, that the big political rivalry between her and her male predecessor as leader of the Conservative Party was because she made a desperate pass at him that he rejected in an attempt to get him to help her career. Like, it's just nonsense, you know? Stop making me defend Margaret Thatcher. I don't like it. (laughs) Um, But it would be one thing if it were obvious comedy. But it's not. It's a satire. It's that straight-faced humour that cloaks itself in reality. And so that just makes it even more uncomfortable. And it putters out because it doesn't really have a story. Eventually she gets pre-selected. But of course, not until she shortens her skirt and flirts with an old guy to get tips about where the good seats are. You know, for the anti-Thatcher crowd, there's enough in the woman's actual record to get us agitated. You don't have to invent all of this sexist bullshit. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyways, next up I saw The Falklands Play. It is a political drama directed by Michael Samuels, and it is an in-depth depiction of British decision-making during the 1982 Falklands War, when Argentina invaded the Falklands Islands, and the British government, led by Margaret Thatcher, played here by Patricia Hodge, responded with their own military force. So... Really, if you're not familiar with the Falklands Islands, it was a question of sovereignty. It was a question of who still owned the Falklands Islands, Argentina or the British. It was colonised by the British years earlier and it had always been a point of contention. But from what I understand, the 1800 people there at the time had decided that they wanted to remain with Britain. They didn't want to go back to Argentina. uh, And it probably didn't help that Argentina was at the time being led by a military junta perpetrating horrific human rights abuses. You probably would want to go with the British if that was the case. Uh, But this movie was actually originally commissioned in 1983, and there was a huge controversy over the script's perceived pro-Thatcher tone given the upcoming general election at the time and the fact that the BBC is a public broadcaster. Uh, ultimately, they cancelled it before it was ever produced, but they, it, that wasn't the end of the controversy because they still aired a series called Tumble Down, which was a series about the Falklands War that was apparently really critical of Margaret Thatcher and the actions she took. But anyways, it was finally produced and aired by the BBC in 2002 alongside a documentary on the controversy, which unfortunately wasn't on this on the disc. And I can only judge this version, which is cut down to 90 minutes from the original script's intended three-hour time slot. But according to Wikipedia, a lot of the cut stuff is scenes with the Argentinian side of the conflict, you know, higher-ups over there. But I've got to say, having watched it, it's a, all of that controversy seems a little much ado about nothing. I wouldn't call it pro-Thatcher. I'd call it more rah-rah Britain, aren't we awesome? Which, given that Thatcher is the prime minister in office in the film... I suppose, unavoidably paints her in a positive light. The closest it has to personal praise of Thatcher is some of the assessments other characters make of her very sort of willful personality. This sort of idea of her being a hurricane, that once she enters the room, it is hers. There's this scene, actually, the American government tried to negotiate some sort of settlement to the war uh, to stop conflict from happening. And there's this scene of the American... Secretary of State and a few of his aides sitting in a 
government car driving back to their embassy after having a talk with Margaret Thatcher. And one of them says, you know, I like her. You know, you always know where you stand with her. And one of the other ones says, yeah, in a corner. Hmm. But, I mean, that's really as close as it gives to a sort of a partisan, you know, support of Thatcher. I mean, it maybe crosses the line a little towards the end, but I would, with some of these monologues that Thatcher has made to deliver, but I would argue that the only reason that would be controversial is because you have a partisan figure making those monologues. If it was a public servant, you wouldn't have a problem with it because it's sort of a sentiment that I think is 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 not left or right. But um, it's a it's a weird thing. I mean, it's the late colored by the fact that it's Thatcher. Thatcher saying. Yeah, but I also think that people really overreacted from, at least from the version that we finally got. I mean, the Labour opposition in the movie is presented as entirely reasonable and supportive and not a roadblock at all to doing what needs to be done. I mean, it's very wonky. It's very in-depth. It's all meetings and backroom dealings. There's not a single scene that doesn't take place in a government building or a government vehicle. It's very complex. You've got to pay close attention to it. It doesn't sort through it all as well as it could, but it mostly works. I mean, it, it doesn't slow down if you don't have a knowledge of the Falklands War. They talk a lot about appeasement, like comparing, like we, we can't just let the land go. We've got to, we've got to fight for it because there's a lot of like comparisons to Munich pre-World War II, but I'm not sure how they span that a little too much, especially with this sort of wussy Neville Chamberlain-like cabinet minister who like just flat out says that his ideology is that war is never justifiable full stop. And that just gives Margaret Thatcher like an, an easy response of, oh, so you'd have just handed us all over to the Nazis, would you? It would have been immoral to fight. I'm not sure it, it delves with those ideological issues as well as or as smartly as it thinks it's it's doing. But that thread with the, the Americans was one of the most interesting for me. Um, if anyone has cause to be offended by the content of this movie it's probably american conservatives reagan's presented as a bit of a dimwit um who <laughs> who can't even remember the names of the islands but uh it, the movie does seem to have some sympathy for alexander haig the uh the secretary of state who was assigned by reagan to try and fix this and was dealing with on the one hand this military junta that was straight up lying to him about their intentions and, like, reneging on deals the moment they'd been made. And then, on the other hand, Margaret Thatcher, one of the most formidable politicians in the world at that point. But it has no ending. I mean, this is about the politics of it. Once once boots are on the ground and guns start being fired, I mean, it has nothing to say anymore, and so it just fast-forwards to the end. But uh, it's also very clearly done on the cheap. I mean, this was done for the legacy of it. It was done... You know, it's sort of a, a just an interesting thing to just have in, have in the archive for the BBC. And it's clear that they didn't put a lot of budget into it. Uh, the sound is very dodgy. It's obviously the set audio. They haven't really done a lot to it in post. You can literally hear cars driving past the studio. <laughs> like, it's not very well handled. But um, look, it's definitely kind to Margaret Thatcher in the end. But I think actually that that's because most people, at least in the Western world, consider her to have been correct in this instance, uh, in a lot of the actions that she took. Um, otherwise, I'm not really seeing it. Maybe the original script was worse. I don't know. But lastly for this trilogy is just a movie simply titled Margaret, which is a political drama directed by James Kent. And in it, Margaret Thatcher is now played by Lindsay Duncan. 
and she is Prime Minister, but she's at the very end of her Prime Ministership, and it's basically that episode of The Crown where she gets turfed out. Um, she's trying to fend off the leadership challenge that will ultimately end her Premiership and is unsuccessful at doing that. It's the best of the three. It gets the tones right. It neither celebrates her or condemns her. It just explores the complexities of her as a historical figure instead. Um, and it has these flashbacks through key moments of her career, particularly her first challenge that saw her become conservative leader. It's good context. It, it elucidates the film's view of her in a, in a good way. And it's kind of hard not to admire the sheer drive of the woman. Like, all of, a lot of the things she did, I disagree with politically, actually quite intensely. But like, to become a leader of a political party in the 70s, and then to just, through sheer force of will, do a lot of the things that she did, you know, there's, there's a level of like steel to that that is impressive. They called her the Iron Lady. Exactly. And there was a reason for that. But, the whole thing with, with this challenge that saw her forced out of office, it was basically similar to the Boris Johnson thing where she won the first vote, but it was a really bad result that sucked the oxygen out of the room and it just wasn't tenable for her any longer. And it really sort of ends up presenting her as a woman who, because she was a woman, could only attain power by gripping as tight as possible. But she had been in power so long that that grip had started to bruise, if that makes sense. Mm. And that's a really interesting take on the character that, as I said, it, it explores the complexity of her. It doesn't just come in and say, yay, Margaret Thatcher, or boo, Margaret Thatcher. It's much more interested in analysing her. Uh, decent performances here, but I will say Duncan feels off. She doesn't try an impression, except for when she is doing like public speeches that there is actual footage of Thatcher doing. And in those cases, she's doing a, a close enough job that we recognize that she's doing an impression but not close enough for it not to be weird and it, it's actually perhaps distressingly given the subject matter a better showcase for old british men with white hair ian mcdermott plays uh dennis there's probably a joke there about instead of being the the emperor he's the husband to the empress but <laughs> but uh michael cochran is also really good in this and so is oliver cotton michael cochran by the way he's in all of these playing a different character in all of them. Like I said, they're not connected. But he's just, like, apparently got this thing where if there's a Margaret Thatcher movie being made, he's like, I must be in it. And I looked up his filmography afterwards, and I was like, son of a bitch, he's in the Meryl Streep Iron Lady movie as well, playing a fourth separate character. Jesus. Mm. Maybe he just wants some sort of, like, monopoly on Margaret Thatcher movies. But frankly, there's a, a mini-series to be had in the Prime Ministership of Margaret Thatcher. It was a very culturally important time in the UK and, and the results of that era have continued to permeate throughout that, that region. And I would argue that the one-two punch of Reagan and Thatcher simultaneously in the two most powerful English-speaking countries in the world, two of arguably the most culturally powerful countries in the world, sort of irrevocably changed politics. And not necessarily for the better. Yeah, in ways that I'm not thrilled about. But uh, next up I saw Get Smart. It's an action comedy directed by Peter Siegel. It's based on the 1960s TV show created by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry, and it follows the spy agency Control, which is attacked, and the identities of all of its agents are compromised. 
And so it's it's out of people to send. And with no other options, they put an awkward but surprisingly competent analyst named Maxwell Smart, played by Steve Carell, into the field alongside Agent 99, played by Anne Hathaway, who has just coincidentally had plastic surgery because her identity had been burned previously. But they've got to stop this nuclear bomb plot. I really enjoy this. It's a very fun, performance-driven movie. It leans heavily into both the action and the comedy. It's not something like Austin Powers, which like focused on the comedy over the action. It's something that tries to do the Bond thing as much as it tries to do the Austin Powers thing. The spy stuff's not very interesting, though. It's it's fine, but it's not the point. The point is Max's development as a character and as a spy. Uh, Steve Carell is the engine that makes this movie go. He is a lot of fun. He's very funny, very deadpan. Uh, he's playing a fool, but an extremely effective fool. And that's sort of an interesting dynamic. What I like the most about Maxwell Smart in this movie is he is legitimately competent. Hmm. He's been an analyst for a very long time, but he has wanted to be an agent for about as long as he's been an analyst for control. So he knows exactly how to operate in the field. To the point where he surprises 99 with how skilled he is. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes of him displaying his talent is when they're moving through that laser grid. (laughs) And how remarkably competently he does so. But it's to the point where it's not even necessary. I like the part where he's talking down the big guy. <laughs> he, he knows exactly the things to say to this guy. Just because you're a henchman doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> because he had been surveilling this guy for the majority of his career. He has good chemistry with Hathaway as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's a cute little dynamic they've got going on there. A lot of bickering and bantering. Uh, there's some episodic stuff with the comedy That's really the way it's structured. I mean, it's not really an ongoing plot, although there is an overarching plot, but you're really just, it's episodic beats that you're getting a lot of this comedy out of. There's a lot of improv. There's actually a a feature on the disc that I found pretty cool where you can watch the movie and every time you get to like a, a gag or an improvised joke, it'll like cut away and show you all of the other iterations of that improv gag. That's fun. Which is an interesting way to do it. Did you like Alan Arkin in this? I do, I do. It's got a very good supporting cast. Alan Arkin, as you say, is is very fun. Dwayne Johnson as well. Terry Crews. Uh, Terrence Stamp. Yes. Incredibly <laughs> droll, Terrence Stamp. There was, there's a level of resentment he just carries throughout <laughs> the piece. Yes. Which is one of my favourite Terrence Stamp energies. I think it's just missing an extra spark. It's mixing a bite of some sort. It's kind of intangible. I don't know quite where I'm describing, but it just doesn't fully reach out and go for it in the way that I wanted it to. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Prime Video, if anyone's interested. And I was watching the special features for that movie, and it had a promo on it for something called Get Smart's Bruce and Lloyd Out of Control. I thought, shit, you're not telling me there's some dodgy direct-to-video Get Smart spin-off, are you? And yes, unfortunately, they were. And so I had to buy it on iTunes. (laughs) Oh, and you hated the purchase. I read your review of this on on your blog. Yeah, it's, it's, as I said, a direct-to-video spin-off directed by Gil Younger. It's 
Just follows the nerdy comic relief sidekicks Bruce, played by Masioka, and Lloyd, played by Nate Torrance. And uh, they've got this sort of experimental invisibility cloak thing that is stolen from them, and they've got to get it back. I'm really not sure why they bothered with this. I mean, did, did they think that these guys, that people were going to come out of the movies thinking that they stole the show? I mean... This was a movie that was released like two weeks after Get Smart Proper had come out in cinemas, like it was a alongside the movie kind of thing. Um, it wasn't even one of those dodgy Universal we're making a sequel a few years later things, which like I know we were enthralled on the text ch- chat last night that they are making an R.I.P.D. 2. <laughs> no one liked R.I.P.D. I liked R.I.P.D. It was incredibly dumb, but it was like fun dumb. Yeah, but no one other than you has seen R.I.P.D. Well, the best thing about that... This is off top, totally off topic from Get Smart's Bruce and Lloyd out of control, but, like, the best thing about that news story is that it, like, appears to be a period-set Western. Okay. Like a prequel. A prequel. That could actually be interesting. Are they bringing Jeff Bridges back? Of course not. No, it's a direct-to-video <laughs> sequel, or prequel in this instance, by Universal... 1440, like the one, the, the same quality w- re- wing of Universal that brings us the Scorpion King sequels and a whole bunch of other ones that I'll be talking about soon. I've actually been on a kick with some of their movies the last couple of nights, but uh, I'll talk about that later on. But anyways, yeah, I mean, the fact that we have been so easily distracted by Get Smart's Bruce and Lloyd out of control is probably a good indicator that there's not much here to this. It, it feels more like an episode of a quickly cancelled TV show spin-off than, than a movie. I mean, there's this whole relationship subplot, which is pretty... It is, it's in the doldrums. It's all, can these nerds get a date? It's got nothing to say, nothing worth saying, at least. And again, it just feels like an episode of a TV show that I don't want to watch. It's pleasant enough i suppose but like why do this like why make this it's very cheap it looks like tv bad tv very dodgy cgi ab- absolutely terrible compositing the credits actually end up holding the names for so so long when they come up and they keep interrupting them with bloopers and deleted scenes as well and i'm like why are they doing this and then i like looked at the runtime was like oh it's the only way that they could get it over 70 minutes and have it be feature length so I'm sending you a, a photo of a screenshot I took of this movie just to show you what I talk about when I talk about the compositing. Oh, ew. Mm. Oh, It's way worse than you think. <laughs> oh, woof. Jesus. Where are their shadows, Lawson? I can't see their shadows. Exactly. I next saw Wally. It is an animated science fiction adventure directed by Andrew Stanton and is set many centuries from now when Earth has been evacuated due to pollution. And the last clean-up robot, Wally, voiced by Ben Burt, is still trying to clean up the place. That's what his programming tells him to do, and so that's what he does. But he's lonely, and he's pretty thrilled when a probe robot called Eve, voiced by Alyssa Knight, arrives to check out whether Earth is fit to be populated by humans again. And they become friends, but then Eve finds plant life and immediately starts heading back home because that's what her programming dictates. And a confused Wally tags along with her back to the mothership. It's really cute, this movie. It's yeah. it's very classic cartoon storytelling. It's a lot of visuals with, with very little dialogue. I will say it's a little slow to start off with. I I don't gel with Wally roaming around 
trash laden earth as much as a lot of people seem to. I think it really picks up when Eve arrives. But Wally's just adorable. He's so expressive the way that they've animated him. He's got this like collection of things, little trinkets that he finds in the trash. He loves watching old musicals. I mean, it's it's just a really nice, sweet character. And his feels rela- like me. Yeah, and his relationship with Eve is incredibly sweet as well. He's like a little puppy dog. But yeah. uh, I I think I prefer the second half once they get to the mothership where all of humanity is basically waiting out their days. Way they're on hand foot by a robot staff. They've atrophied, you know. Everything has become automated, and so they've become these sort of gelatinous versions of themselves with no more muscle mass and no more bone development. They're just sort of these big babies in chairs because they don't have to do anything anymore. It's got some keen observations about consumerism, about gadgetry taking over. I do think it's a little bit pot calling the kettle black, considering Steve Jobs helped get Pixar going, but... What are you going to do? There's more going on on the ship, though. There's a lot more colour, more characters, and it manages some real tension and emotion. It's a a good film. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone's interested. I love the little robots that Mo, I think his name is, who sees how dirty Wally is and just gets so angry and frustrated, just follows him around everywhere. I next saw Hancock. It is a superhero comedy directed by Peter Berg. It's about an alcoholic burnout superhero named Hancock, played by Will Smith. He saves a PR specialist, Ray, played by Jason Bateman. And as thanks, Ray offers to give him an image makeover. But while they're doing that, Hancock finds himself drawn to Ray's wife, Mary, played by Charlize Theron. This is really disappointing. It it should be so much more entertaining than it is, given the premise that it has and the, the people involved. The second half is bizarre. Yeah, but I prefer it to the first half. The first half is just bland and generic. It's it's like the first draft of one of those Netflix Family Guys knockoffs. You know, the ones that they keep trying to make work but never hit? Stuff like Paradise PD or Chicago Party Aunt? Mm-hmm. I kid you not, there is a show on Netflix called Chicago Party Aunt. That makes me sad. But the original script was apparently a a serious take on this. It was sort of a Watchmen-esque deconstruction of superheroes, and Michael Mann was attached to to direct. But over the course of its development, it turned into this. And I wish they had made that original script instead, because I want to see the Michael Mann-directed movie about an alcoholic superhero who's you know, burnt out and dealing with serious things. Uh, I would like to see it more than this sort of the weakest first draft of a American Dad episode you could possibly imagine, basically. Like I said, I prefer the second half, which I gather is somewhat of a controversial opinion, but it has an idea at least. It has a, a weird idea, but an idea nonetheless, and it finds something approaching an emotional through line. And it's such a complete switch in tone oh yeah yeah definitely the first half and this is what i thought first time i saw this that it's such an uneven film because at the beginning it's got all this comedy it's will smith threatening to shove people's heads up other people's asses and you know i that got a chuckle out of me and sort of him flying around hung over is funny but at a certain point it's like no jokes anymore serious <laughs> I'm not thrilled with it. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. 
The cast is fine, but they're unimpressive. There's, there's not much chemistry between anyone. It doesn't even have an ending either. It just stops. Mm. It doesn't even try to resolve any of the things that it comes up with. The only thing that I really enjoyed about it was the, the John Powell score. I think he's got a lot going on there that is, is quite positive. But uh, it's available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, if anyone's interested. I next saw Journey to the Centre of the Earth. It is a family adventure film directed by Eric Brevik. And it is not an adaptation. Well, it's a sort of, sort of, kind of, but not really adaptation of the Jules Verne novel of the same name. It's inspired by. It follows Trevor, played by Brendan Fraser. He's a geologist. He finds new clues in the mysterious disappearance of his brother, who has been off the grid for a decade. And so he goes to search for him in Iceland, along with his young nephew, Sean, played by Jean's nemesis, Josh Hutchison, because he was looking after Sean for the weekend. And so, of course, the kid comes along with him to Iceland. And they, along with a mountain guide named Hannah, played by Anita Bryan, fall down a very long hole, a very deep hole, and find themselves in the centre of the earth. Because apparently in this universe that that the movie posits, the works of Jules Verne are fact. They're based on actual stories. That we just never heard about because I don't know. I like it never really comes up with a reason why the scientists that were the basis for the Jules Verne stories would never publicize <laughs> these facts, but whatever. It's a it's a bit of fun, you know? It's it's an it's a fun film. It's a classic family adventure movie. Yeah. It's got a very classic adventure vibe. It's a very nice modernization of that Jules Verne tone. It's a very Saturday morning matinee. There's a lot of goofy characters having a kid-friendly adventure. Those characters have very little to distinguish them, though. Very little detail to flesh them out. I think that Fraser is ill-served by the material. He's not in as good a form as he usually is. But it keeps the fun up with a lot of these set pieces. And it uses Vern as as a blueprint. It's bringing in these concepts that he came up with over 100 years ago. And it's working well as as movie set pieces but jesus it looks so cheap like it looks more like journey to a canadian soundstage than journey to the center of the earth it the effects have aged terribly but i've got to say the way that they handle the 3d in this i mean if i was a kid watching this movie in the cinemas with the 3d glasses and all of the silly nonsense they do with the 3d i think it i can easily imagine this movie being a kid's favorite movie and uh i can imagine that for the sequel as well, Journey to the Mysterious Island. You get it? Journey to the Mysterious Island, but it's Journey numeral two, the Mysterious Island. Uh-huh. 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 Oh, I forgot to mention the first Journey to the Center of the Earth is available on Stan if anyone's interested. But this sequel is directed by Brad Payton, and it's basically the same deal as the first, except except instead of Journey to the Center of the Earth, it is the Jules Verne novel, The Mysterious Island. Uh, Sean is the only returning character and he detects a radio code, uh, and once he decodes it, he finds that they are coordinates to find his missing grandfather, Alexander, who is played by Michael Caine, and he convinces his stepfather, Hank, played by Dwayne Johnson, to go with him to search for Alexander. Jesus, members of this family just drop like flies, don't they? Once they find those coordinates, they find themselves stranded on Jules Verne's mysterious island from the book, which is surrounded by hurricanes. They can't get out of there. And uh, unfortunately for them, the island is sinking rapidly into the sea. This is an improvement in every way on the first. It's still nothing great, but it's a lot of fun. 
it feels more professional. It looks better. It's better written. They have characters with arcs. I mean, it's still training wheel stuff. Kane's character is just too pissy for no reason. There's an incredibly irritating comic relief character played by Louise Guzman, who deserves better. But the effects are so much improved. It's a bigger budget. It's better realized. It has a few ideas that it abandons too quickly. I mean, it brings up this idea that Gulliver's Travels and Treasure Island and the Mysterious Island are all based on the same real-life island. But it doesn't do enough with that. It doesn't bring the Gulliver's Travels and the Treasure Island into it as much as you'd want. The Treasure Island thing is weird because it's like, how? Like, the Treasure Island has absolutely nothing going on with it, and really the only thing they pull in from Gulliver's Travels is mini, like, tiny versions of big animals, like a tiny elephant. They may as well say that the, the island from Bloody Spike Kids 2 is based on it. Yeah, you might as well, yeah. But uh, Hutchison has improved considerably, matured as an actor a lot in the meantime, uh, and Johnson fares better here than Fraser. I will say he's a better character to play. And you get a decent Andrew Lockington score as well. It's it's just a fun adventure movie for kids. That's also of the sort that's actually going to be entertaining for adults and is not going to torture them. Uh, and my understanding from relatives who have children is that they're always on the lookout for those. They'd rather one of these than another Alvin and the Chipmunks squeakle. But if you would like to check it out, it's available for streaming in Australia on Foxtel now. And I, I was so taken by the Jules Verniness that I actually did use it as the opportunity to add some of the very old adventure move like the Ray Harryhausen <laughs> Journey to the Centre of the Earth and Mysterious Islands to the list. So I'll get to those in a few years' time. I next saw Meet Dave. It's a science fiction comedy directed by Brian Robbins, and it follows Dave, played by Eddie Murphy. He is a lifelike robot populated by tiny aliens, whose captain is also played by Eddie Murphy. Uh, And they are looking for a device that went off course in New York. Uh, It was supposed to drain our oceans for salt, but uh, it's instead ended up in the possession of a kid named Josh, who's played by Austin Myers. And... As Dave is trying to find Josh, he also meets his single mother, Gina, played by Elizabeth Banks. And through his interactions with us, he and his crew begin to like us and begin to doubt their mission. Because, of course, evaporating the oceans to get our salt is going to cause us a lot of problems. (laughs) And they start to think that maybe it's not a good idea. Look... I don't know what to tell you guys. I mean, it's a movie about a robot Eddie Murphy piloted by a tiny alien Eddie Murphy. It is what it is. Your likelihood of enjoying it directly coincides, I think, with whether you think that a movie about a robot Eddie Murphy piloted by a tiny alien Eddie Murphy is at all interesting whatsoever. I mean, if you didn't completely reject that premise as soon as I said it, then maybe you might find something here. I used to think it was great fun. As a, as a teenager when I saw it. And i got to admit, I went back into it this time expecting to come away saying, geez, I was 14-year-old me was an idiot. But, you know, no, it, it I, it's not as funny as my stupid 14-year-old self thought, but it's still dumb fun. It's deeply stupid and absurd. I think willfully so. It's, it's co-written by one of the writers from Mystery Science Theatre 3000. So I think it, it knows a lot of... What it's doing is pretty silly, but it's it's all Murphy here, really. It's the slapstick, it's the faces, it's the line delivery. I mean, it's just incredibly silly stuff. I mean, he goes to 
get a less conspicuous outfit because he arrives in a, in a white suit. And so he goes to Old Navy and the, some worker comes up to him and says, Welcome to Old Navy. Any ideas? Likely a ritual greeting, sir. Welcome to Old Navy. 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 That's the level of humour that we're operating with here. It's really stupid stuff, but I can't help but laugh at a lot of it. I never buy Gina as a character. I mean, Dave is funny for us because we know he's an alien robot populated by tiny by tiny aliens. Gina doesn't know that, though, so she should think he's a, soci- a psychopath, but she doesn't react nearly as strongly as she should when she keeps coming home to find him in her apartment unannounced playing video games with her young son. But there's all of this stuff on, on board Dave, if you want to call it that, inside Dave, with... Uh, some of the workers there, number two, played by Ed Helms, and number three, played by Gabriel Union, and their relationship with Eddie Murphy as the captain. That's all pretty uninteresting. But you've got these cop characters outside in, in the New York area, played by Scott Kahn and Mike O'Malley, that are even worse. They're clearly supposed to be comic relief, but they're not very funny at all. Look, it's it's a silly idea. It's It's got a willing star. And it's got some funny absurdity to it as well, but it, it it is the same joke over and over again for 90 minutes, and that's just not sustainable. But um, it's available for streaming in Australia on Prime Video and Disney+, Plus. if anybody is interested. Lastly this week, I saw Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along blog, which is a comedy musical directed by Joss Whedon, uh, and it follows a supervillain named Dr. Horrible. He's played by Neil Patrick Harris. He's auditioning to get into the Evil League of Evil, and he gets distracted from that by his crush on a woman who uses the same laundromat as he does, Penny, played by Felicia Day. And he is distraught when she starts dating his arch-nemesis, Captain Hammer, played by Nathan Fillion. Sort of how I assume... Uh, John would be inconsolable if a girl he liked started dating Josh Hutchison. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, people might know that this was originally a web series. It was written sort of as a response to a lot of the industry issues, to the writer's strike in 2007 to 2008, sort of written to sidestep around a lot of that, as far as I can tell. But it, it, it was originally released in three parts online, and it was later edited into a 45-minute film. Have you guys ever seen this? Yeah. It's so fun. It's 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 really entertaining. The thing that I like about it is the music. The music is great. Oh yeah, it commits to the musical angle so totally and completely. I mean, Joss Whedon had done this before. He had done a musical episode of Buffy called Once More with Feeling that is most people's including probably my favorite episode of the the series. But he carries that over here. It it's it works because he commits. He's actually doing a musical. He's not, like, making fun of the fact that he's doing a musical. He's doing a musical. And the songs are all proper musical songs. It's catchy music. It's good music. It fits the vibe. And every song ends abruptly except for one of them. And it's very much on purpose. But there are, the, the story itself is this interesting thing. And I, certainly I think that we'll be, we'll be talking a little bit more in the deep dive about this sort of weird spot that comics adaptations were offering in this sort of 2007, 2008 
pre-MCU, post-Batman Begins world that they're living in, where I actually think that, that this series got out in front of a lot of things because it's talking about comic books and superheroes and supervillains and dissecting those that iconography and those figures in a way that obviously it had been done in comic books before, but in terms of like mainstream Hollywood productions, it was doing that before the audience had become super literate with that stuff. It's a very funny script as well, very well-written characters. I do think it tries to do a little too much in too little time. I found myself wishing actually that this was either this was a feature length, like two hour film, or it was done as like a six episode miniseries, the way that they would probably do it now. But it explores good and evil in some really interesting ways. I mean, I think it's very interesting that the supervillain is framed as the protagonist here and the, mm. the hero, the traditional hero is a jerk. The, the sort of like blurring of moral lines, that lack of surety as I, I don't want to get too like film school in it, but like part of me wants to draw a connection to part of me wonders if Whedon is com is using the influx of comic book media, superhero media post nine eleven and sort of turning it on its head. That I've often thought that we see the success of so much superhero stuff post nine eleven because people like that idea of a hero who can come in and solve these incredible problems and protect us from chaos. But I think that uh, that Whedon is taking a lot of those ideas and sort of deconstructing them and analysing them and asking what they mean within a narrative um, and how they can be used within a narrative. There's also a lot here in in this piece about the banality of evil, uh, how Dr. Horrible doesn't start out uh, with like the intent to destroy. That's not the point. He wants control. Because he thinks he's the only person who can keep everything going, which is like a weird, different kind of idea for a supervillain. I mean, Doctor Horrible does seem like he'd be like a member of the Proud Boys or something these days. <laughs> like he's just very incel sort of. Yeah, he's got some incel energy. Yeah, but the music's a bop though. Yeah, it is very good music, and Neil Patrick Harris is fantastic as Doctor Horrible. Great ending as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A very Joss Whedon ending, but, like, great. I mean, so Joss Whedon that people were, like, predicting that that was the direction it was going to go before the third yeah. episode had ended, had aired. Uh, and um, he always has enjoyed doing stuff like he does at the end of Doctor Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Uh, so, we had a pretty decently sized week. The first thing we watched is a film called Predator. Uh, directed by John McTiernan, a team of special force operatives led by a tough but fair Major Dutch Schaefer, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, are ordered to assist a CIA agent, Colonel Al Dillon, played by Carl Weathers, on a rescue mission for the potential survivors of a helicopter that was down over a remote Central American jungle. Not long after they land, this whole pretense disappears. After finding out that there have been Spetnaz operatives in this jungle assisting rebels, things go pear-shaped, and this action movie becomes a slasher film when an alien hunter begins picking off the group one by one, skinning them and displaying them as sick trophies around the jungle. Can I ask quickly, have you guys seen this before? Uh, it would have been a long time ago. Yeah. This is one of those quintessential sci-fi action films. It's Predator, baby! It is the creation of 
what is known as the apex predator of aliens. It's it's the reason we have stuff like Alien vs. Predator. You may hate it for that, but this is very interestingly paced, I think. It begins as like a traditional action film. You get that wonderful Carl Weathers, Arnie handshake. It's sort of like testosterone-fueled 80s action nonsense. Yeah, I mean, they come across a base full of rebels and Spetnaz operatives, and they wipe the entire place clean of them in one of the most action-packed sequences that I've seen in a film, to the point where Ice, they parody it in Hot Shots 2, they do a version of it in The Suicide Squad, where they're just going through just taking out these people. And it's like, here's your fix of action, because we've got Carl Weathers, we've got Jesse Ventura, we've got Shane Black for like four to five scenes, and we've got Arnie. We've got Arnie. So we have to show these action characters killing a bunch of nameless, faceless people. It changes when the Predator shows up. And the Predator is really the film's not-so-secret weapon. The pace changes. It's not fast anymore. It's drawn out. It takes its time as the Predator picks them off one by one. And I have to say, the creature design for that first Predator is just outstanding stuff. Wonderful conception execution. I also found it really fascinating the techniques that they used to accomplish the the cloaking device for the Predator. What they did was they would film a scene of the Predator, like the full physical dude, moving through a space, and then they would film the location again, but like empty, with no one moving through. Then they would using some bizarre double exposure technique, merge the two. So you could see the sort of like the warping of the frame with nothing in it as it sort of like distorted. I assume you know the story that Jean-Claude Van Damme was the original actor cast as the Predator, but then left the project for reasons that no one can seem to agree on. Yeah, and the the Predator used to look incredibly different at that time. That was like more lizard-esque. But I'm really glad we got the Predator we've got now. He's, it's one of those like quintessential creature designs from the 80s. He's got a shoulder-mounted gun. He's ripping people's fucking spines out. He's mimicking their voices to try and move them into places where he can get the drop on them. Apparently, the making of this movie was miserable. People got sick often. They were filming properly in Central American jungle. They were covered in leeches, covered in scratches because of the trees, and it shows. By the end of the movie, Arnie looks like if he closed his eyes, he would just fall asleep for four days. What I like most about this movie is how bleak it is. Yeah. Pretty much all of his crew gets slaughtered. Uh, One of their number gets... In possibly my favorite scene, their spine and skull extracted, cleaned, and turned into a trophy. What surprised me on this rewatch was how much time we actually spend with the Predator. How sort of methodical this hunter is. And it was the movie that created this idea of the Predator as sort of like a noble hunter, Mm. as having this like 
still kind of sick and twisted on a code. It won't attack you if you're not a threat to it, because there's no fun in hunting something that won't fight back. And that's kind of, like, more scary. It wants you to feel like you could fight it. It wants you to fight back because it gets, like, perverse joy from the act. It's not a predator, it's a trophy hunt. Yeah. Like, it. it's, like, really, really fascinating in that regard. And the Alan Silvestri score, like, inches towards doing Back to the Future shenanigans, because there's only so many ways that Alan Silvestri can score a film, but it's still a really cool action score, and this is just a fun action film with a very fantastic creature design and really good effects. This is the second uh, rewatch I've had of a 80s sci-fi movie that starts with a spaceship that I didn't know was there, the first being The Thing. But yeah, I had a really good time with this. The film I had a much better time with is Prey, directed by Dan Trachtenberg, in which young Comanche woman Naru, played by Amber Midthunder, sets out on her first hunt, seeking to combat a creature that has the risk of killing her. Running parallel to this is the story of a young Yeltja hunter on his first hunt, the first to take place on the planet Earth where he works up the food chain seeking a worthy adversary, one that has the risk of killing him. As the two young hunters collide, we will see who ends up as the predator and who ends up as the prey. Just for all of the, no doubt, fuming nerds, it's pronounced Yautja. Yautja? Yautja. Yautja. Yeah. I adored this. Mm. The tone of it is so methodical. It's also, like structurally and tone-wise very similar to the first. Yeah, I was so glad we watched the first Predator right before this. We had a, like a double movie night for this. And what really works for me is how these stories are running parallel. Uh, the young Predator versus Naru, and how each of them are kind of like trying to figure out who they are. Like, Naru has wanted to be a hunter for very long long time. Her brother is like a full hunter for the Comanche tribe that they were part of, and he's very respected by, you know, their people. And Naru has tried to go and hunt before, but she always sort of like chokes at the end. She can't quite seal the deal. She's got all the theory down, it's just putting it into action is yeah. where she comes up short. And that is paralleled with this young predator who just does not give a shit. He is possibly the most brutal version of the Predator I have seen. It's so interesting because you are given these parallel storylines for these characters, and the Feral Predator, which is what he's called, is such a fantastic design. He's not got all of the tech that the Predator in the first movie had. He doesn't have a laser cannon. He's got a cannon with lock-on like, metal bolts that fly through the air, curve around, and hit someone. He's got a spear, he's got swords, he's got a shield that he uses to decapitate people. And he's got, obviously, he's got the wrist blade. And they do so much with letting him just slaughter a bunch of people. Yeah, and, like, the, the most fascinating thing is where Naru and... The Feral Predator sort of, like, deviate as characters. Naru, as a hunter, has 
her own code. Like, her people do not waste. That is very important to them. They use every part of the animal. They use the land around them to give back to the land around them. There's a sense of deep abiding respect. At the beginning, like, this phrase that comes up on and on throughout the movie is what what you hunt, you treat with dignity and respect. Uh, this phrase is this is this is as far as you go here, no further. And that's something that she has been taught to say to the animal that she's hunting. But this feral predator is a lot like the French fur traders we come across later in the film. It's about trophies. It's about the sport. There is no honor in what the predators do. As much as they might think there is, they're doing it for fun, like a sick, perverse joy, much like the fur traders. So then it is very interesting to watch the feral predator slaughter a camp of French fur traders, only to later in turn fight Naru. Like, they have two different ideas of being a hunter. One hunts out of necessity, one hunts for sport. And that's the conflict here. The action is incredible. The film is shot beautifully. Scored fantastically by Sarah Shackner. They have many, many references to the original Predator. If it bleeds, we can kill it. And I love this movie. It turned out outstanding. I love the idea behind this. And just to say, Amber Thunder nails the character. All of the actors are fantastic here. But I just love the idea of getting a Predator and putting them in a specific time period and seeing and sort of just expanding from there and seeing what would happen in that scenario. A lot of people have been talking about the potential of having a Predator movie set in feudal Japan where the Predator goes up against the samurai. Well, they do sort of flirt with that a little in the third one with the... Yakuza member. Yakuza member who uses the samurai sword at one point. Very sort of ghosts of Tsushima looking fight. Under a tree. <laughs> I, for one, would like a Hiroyuki Sonata-led uh, samurai film where he kicks the shit out of a predator. That would be sick as hell. That would be peak cinema, to be perfectly frank. This would perhaps be my favorite predator film. Yeah. I like Predators. I like Predator 2. Just for, like, the sheer fucking audacity of the predator standing on the building with his trophy getting struck by goddamn lightning. That's just badass. I like Predator. The Predator, I don't care for. This was really, really good. I highly recommend it. It is a damn shame this didn't go to cinemas. Honestly. I'm glad that I was able to see it so soon, but this deserved a cinema release. It really did. Yeah, I wish I wish it had, so then I could see it rather than punting it onto the list as are the rules. Oh, mate. When we when I was watching this, I just I was sitting there. I'm like, I am so sad for Lawson that yeah, he has you would to like wait this for a this. lot. It's right up your alley. Like, I wouldn't say it's a Shadow in the Cloud situation because it's not nearly as buck wild. Yeah, Shadow in the Cloud situation implies a, a, a level of like specific mania geared toward us <laughs> yeah. three. Exactly. This is just really good. It needed an extra level of what the fuck to reach that. But again, this was just fantastic. I highly recommend it to anyone who gets a chance to see it. You can find both Predator and Prey and the rest of the Predator franchise on Disney+. We also watched the first episode of a new 
television series, and this will be the last thing we talk about this week, House of the Dragon, a Game of Thrones spin-off. Already renewed for season two. Already renewed for season two, and hell yes. Well, they weren't going to be able to tell all that story in one season. Set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, and 172 years before the birth of Daenerys Targaryen, it portrays the beginning of the end of House Targaryen, both the Valerians and the High Towers. The events leading up to and covering the Targaryen War of Succession, known colloquially as D- the Dance of the Dragons. It is based on parts of the novel Fire and Blood, written by George R. R. Martin, and listeners would be happy to know that this story has a beginning, middle, and end. We know where this is going to end, so do not fret. I think they've also talked about like turning it into, like after a few seasons, more of an anthology series where they swap the casts out and jump forward like 100, 200 years in time, stuff like that. Like One of the most interesting elements of what they're doing here is that Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire were, were histories. They weren't traditional novels like the Game of Thrones books. These were in-universe historical texts that are full of omissions, bias, and things just the people writing a historical record just weren't aware of. So what they've got is a wonderful structure. What they have to actually translate is the characters that show up. What they have to translate is all of those behind-the-scenes backdoor dealings that those writing in the historical texts were unable to get access to. So what we've got is something incredibly fascinating from an adaptation standpoint. And it's really well done, because we've got a fantastic cast here, being led by Millie Alcock and Emma D'Arcy, who both play Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen at different points in her life. She becomes the heir to the throne from her father, King Viserys I Targaryen, the fifth king of the Seven Kingdoms, played by Paddy Cosendine. And he's very good. We also have Matt Smith as Prince Daemon Targaryen, a proper Joffrey-level piece of shit. Uh, no, I wouldn't say Joffrey-level, not yet at least. <laughs> not yet le- yet at least, but he's fantastic here. Risa Farns as Otto Hightower, who I do not trust at all, but maybe that's because he's played by Risa Farns. Like, I never trust his characters. He always has, like, a sketchy backstabber vibe to a lot of his characters. Yeah, which I just love about Risa Farns. We've also got Eve Best as Prince Rhaenys Targaryen, the queen who never was. We've also got Steve Toussaint as Lord Corlys Valerion, known as the Sea Snake, and husband to Princess Rhaenys. Like, you don't have a lot of the context of Game of Thrones. You haven't seen it. You know broad strokes. Oh, yeah, I've seen three season four. Oh, okay, cool. So a lot of this is set up in this first episode. They've got to do a lot of the groundwork, not just getting us set in with these characters, but in this particular time in Westeros. Hmm. This episode is set pretty much entirely, except for one scene in King's Landing. The other scene is on Dragonstone, very specifically, very importantly. But the world is just as brutal as in Game of Thrones. It is cruel to the common person, and particularly cruel to women. And this is shown by the character of Alicent Hightower, 
daughter of Otto, played in this episode and in the, as a young woman by Emily Carey and played as an older woman by Olivia Cook, who book readers apparently do not like, but this show Yo. is seeming to give a lot more... You'll see. Seeming to give a lot more complex emotions to. Yeah, because book readers only have the context of the historical... Only have the historical context. They don't have the actual inner monologue context. A lot of this material was the stuff in that weirdo fire and blood fake history book that George R.R. R. Martin wrote a few years yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. right? The 736-page fake history book he wrote instead of finishing the series that he started 25 years ago. He's... No, 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 no. Lawson, that's one of the fake histories he's written. The other is The World of Ice and Fire. He's done it twice. And good portion of The World of Ice and Fire, to my disdain, having both audiobooks, is Fire and Blood. <laughs> he's also got a bunch of, like, side stories like The Tales of Duncan Egg. Yeah. Which, you know... Fair enough. I, if I was him, I would be, frankly, trolling people a little bit. And, like, I would complete those books but not tell anyone and not release them until I die. <laughs> <laughs> Just to, like, the last fuck you to the whole audience. <laughs> it's like he has the opposite problem to Alexander Hamilton from the play Hamilton. He really should get on writing because he's running out of time. He has a third fake history book coming out in October called The Rise of the Dragon. Yeah! And he hasn't released an actual Game of Thrones book since 2011. It's incredible. Like, that's the great magic trick of George R. R. Martin. He gets you hooked. At this point, he has to be doing it on purpose, right? I like to think so. <laughs> I don't know whether to be angry or Too just- Too busy cameoing in one of the Sharknado movies, George. Oh, come on, that's like a day. Like- Let's not pretend that Sharknado is responsible for the dearth of Game of Thrones novels. <laughs> like, I don't know whether to be disappointed with George R. R. Martin or incredibly impressed yeah. that he's been able to just hold this over people for so very long. He's cucked the entire literary world. I'm not someone who is who ended up disappointed with the end of Game of Thrones. I loved it from beginning to end. Yeah. But I would be remiss not to say that the series would have ended better if the books were written. Yeah. Like, come on, George. You can complain about it all you like, but you didn't actually have them written. They had to come up with shit. And people being disappointed by the shit that was come up with? That's on you, bud. I've been hyped about this since they announced it, because the Targaryen Civil War is perhaps the most interesting part of Westeros' history. It is so bloody and mean-spirited. And it's exactly what I wanted from Game of Thrones. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's back. back. I will be interested to see what their other spin-offs look at look like because they've like they've got so many in development at this point. And given that this like this had the biggest premiere of any show in HBO's entire history, I would imagine that uh, David Zaslav is sitting there like, yeah, yeah, more of those, more of those, make them. I would like them to do the Tales of Duncan Egg. That is in development, I believe. Yeah, because that would be really cool. Uh, if they do intend to make this like a sort of anthology thing, I would love to see the Blackfire Rebellion. I don't think it's an anthology in the sense that it'll be jumping all over time. I think it's focused on the Targaryen. They've talked about it being focused on the Targaryen dynasty, but because that whole story takes place over like centuries, they're going to have to end up doing huge time jumps. Oh, for sure. I would love to see the Blackfire Rebellion. 
and maybe Robert's Rebellion. Hmm, that would be interesting. And they've got that Jon Snow show. Whatever the hell that's going to be. That's a sequel series. Yeah. Well, th- at this point, like, this is the thing, is that, that Blood Moon thing that didn't end up going, Martin wasn't very heavily involved in that, apparently. And he w- apparently wasn't very heavily involved in the last few seasons of show of the show in terms of... of- of uh plotting and stuff but he's like got both hands on the wheel now with a lot of the stuff that they're doing as the spin-offs so that might be another thing that's taking up a lot of his time but let me see let the dude write come on (laughs) do you think he's gonna pull a tolkien and not have the last thing he wrote be released until like a family member of his is... No, it'd be like, like Brandon Sanderson will be called in like he got called in for the Wheel of Time. And, <laughs> like, he'll just, like, that'll, like, he'll write his own highly successful, like, what are they, what is he called, the Cosmere stories or whatever. But, like, every now and then when another prestigious fantasy author dies, he'll come in and clean up, clean things up. But I, yep. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here and apparently there are three animated TV shows in development... Yeah, three animated series in development, and then in the live-action realm, there's the Jon Snow sequel series, 10,000 Ships, Nine Voyages, a.k.a. Sea Snake. Okay. And the Dunk and Egg prequel series, which is being tentatively titled at this point either The Hedge Knight or Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which I've got to say is a better title than Dunk and Egg. Dunk and Egg are, like, the names of the main characters in that, yeah. but The Hedge Knight would be oh, a really good I, I title. Thought- Whenever you said Dunk and Egg, I thought you meant, like, his name is Duncan Egg. Dunk and Egg. Right. Two people. Because I was getting very confused that it was just about this, like, weird guy with the last name Egg. It's short for Duncan and Egon. So, yeah, it looks like, I mean, they had been talking about doing one that was based in Flea Bottom, but it looks like that's not in development anymore. Uh, And obviously that Blood Moon prequel one didn't end up going. Which is unfortunate, because I would have liked to see, like, the real prehistory of that whole place, but... Yeah, that would have been really, really dope. Let's be honest here, we're talking about something like Star Trek, where there'll still be a Game of Thrones series on the air 50 years from now. Like, yeah. it'll just be one spin-off after another, and maybe there won't be a ton of them on... It won't be the MCU, where there's, like, so much content all the time, but it will be like Star Trek, where you'll have two or three running simultaneously, and it'll just go on and on. Yeah. It's just good to be back in Westeros, you know? Uh, you can find that on Binge in Australia. You can also find that on Foxtel if you still have that. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Wanted. This is the mind-numbing black hole I call a job. And this is me, Wesley Gibson. Nobody. Like everybody else, I just keep waiting for a lotto ticket out of my boring existence and into a life that means something. I knew your father. My father died the week I was born. Your father died yesterday on the rooftop of the Metropolitan Building. He was one of the greatest assassins who ever lived. Then the other one is behind you. I thought he'd be taller. Shoot the wings off the flies. You're insane. Insanity is coasting through life in a miserable existence when you have a cage lion locked inside. I really think you have me mixed up with somebody else. Shoot the wings off the flies. Either you shoot or I do. Only a few people in the world can do that. You can't even see them! 
Your father could do it. And you can do it. We are a fraternity of assassins. The weapons of fate. The fraternity has trained assassins for thousands of years. You'll be given everything you need. Curve the bullet. To kill your target. <laughs> I think he's ready. We don't know how far the ripples of our decisions go. Kill one, save a thousand. Now, that's what we believe in, and that's why we do it. This is what's been missing from your life, Wesley. Purpose. All you have to do now is embrace it. I'm the man. Shoot this motherfucker! Are we gonna bond now? Would you like to? Within this unstable world, every life hangs by a thread. We are that thread. Take control of your own destiny. Join us. Wanted. That was the trailer for Wanted. It is an action movie directed by Tamur Bekmambetov, and it is, in theory, based on the comic book limited series of the same name, written by Mark Millar and illustrated by J.G. Jones, though in practice the resemblance is virtually non-existent. We follow Wesley Gibson, played by James McAvoy, a dweeby office worker whose girlfriend is cheating on him with his best friend, and whose boss screams at him in front of his co-workers on a regular basis. This makes Wesley a prime target for all manner of extremist groups, but the one that gets to him first is the Fraternity, a secret society of assassins who follow the instruction of a magic loom. Wait, come back, hear me out. These are benevolent killers who work as servants to face to correct the evil in the world. They are given coded instructions hidden in the fabric produced by the loom that are then translated by their leader Sloan, played by Morgan Freeman. Which, you know, sounds like complete bullshit. <laughs> the result is the name of a person who threatens world stability. The fraternity pay them a visit, and boom, presto, crisis averted. Wesley is whisked away to join the fraternity by the enigmatic super-assassin Fox, played by Angelina Jolie where he is informed that his long-lost father was one of the organization's best. Any hope of an awkward father-son reunion is shattered when he also learns that his dad was recently murdered by a rogue fraternity member named Cross, played by Thomas Kreshman. Cross has turned on his former comrades, and he's now taking them out one by one. The fraternity isn't optimistic about their chances of stopping him, though. He was the best of them. Well... Second best. That's why he took out dear old Papa Gibson. He was the only one who could match him. Sloan has an idea, though. Perhaps the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Perhaps Wesley has the same innate abilities that his father had, just waiting to be unlocked through training. Perhaps Wesley can stop the world's deadliest killer. If you're thinking that sounds like a bit of a reach, you're right. Not all is as it seems. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around to give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we thought of Wanted. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is over-the-top action with a very ridiculous plot, but it's really well put together. It's like if Fight Club had a baby with Watchmen. It is batshit insane. 
but held together by performances which know what kind of movie this is. Morgan Freeman, James McAvoy, and Angelina Jolie understand what the hell kind of movie this is. All right, ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I had a really good time in this one. The action is really cool. It's sort of like Matrix crossed Fight Club crossed the eventual Kingsman movies, also based on works by Mark Millar. And what we ended up with is the best case scenario of adapting that comic book. All right, let me set myself up here. I really enjoy this movie. I think it's dumb fun. It's ridiculous. But I can't deny I'm a little troubled by a little bit of the nastier effects of it. I think you're right, Jean, when you called it sort of the love child of something like Fight Club, but it's Fight Club where I'm not at all convinced that the filmmakers have the same level of self-awareness that David Fincher had in that movie, and there's a something about that that keeps me from truly loving it. All right. Now, before we begin the discussion as a whole, I have a production history, as I always do. Mark Millar's comic miniseries is extremely different to this movie. Harley will speak to that in a moment. That will be our first topic of conversation when we get to that. It has very few similarities here. They're not assassins in the comic. They are supervillains who have successfully wiped out the heroes, and they are not benevolent at all. But this story idea was inspired by when Malar, as a child, believed that superheroes were real. His brother told him that they, like, this is when Millar was very, very small, but his older brother told him that superheroes had been real people and the villains had defeated them all, which is actually like a strange bit of social commentary for like a 12-year-old to tell his younger brother. (laughs) You think you're making a really weird joke and freaking out your kid brother, but you're actually saying something kind of real. Weird and eerily prescient. But Malar is on the behind-the-scenes features on the disc talking about how, you know, he'd see black-and-white photos of the George Reeves Superman in books and things, and it was like seeing a portrait of Abraham Lincoln or something. It was like, well, clearly, they were, look at him, he's right there. They were real. Upon its release, the comic series got a lot of Hollywood attention. God knows why. Yeah. I think they get attention now, but definitely for, like, 2005, 2006, it's a weird thing to to think to adapt in that landscape. Producer Mark Platt got the rights and took it to Universal Pictures, where he received support from the comics-loving executive Jeff Kirschenbaum, who saw potential in the property and pushed for an R rating. The producers chose Russian-Kazakh filmmaker Timur Bekmambatov as director. It is his first English-language film, but his previous two movies, Nightwatch and Daywatch, had attracted attention for their style. Millar wasn't very happy with the original script. He found it too soft and Americanized. He had envisioned wanted more as an anti-Spider-Man. Great power and no responsibility, you know? This guy gets all of this insane power and decides to use it for purely selfish, purely negative things. He was more on board with the direction the project started to take once Beckman Betov took over. Millar approved of his, quote, Eastern European madness, end quote. James McAvoy was actually rejected by the studio when he first screen tested. They wanted a traditional leading man, you know, a big bodybuilder, you know, type who looked like a jock, basically. But They considered McAvoy the runt of the litter, and it was only later that they realised that that was exactly what they needed for that role. 
Angelina Jolie was cast after the role of Fox was rewritten specifically for her. Millar was very excited. Quote, The only way they could have got a bigger star to play this role is if they'd hired Tom Cruise in drag. End quote. She based her performance on Clint Eastwood who had just directed her in Changeling. She also was the one who requested her character die at the end. She thought it was the natural ending, considering that character's ideology and journey throughout the film. Maybe a good choice. Kristen Hager, who played James McAvoy's girlfriend, Kathy, had previously auditioned for the role of Fox before being given the role of Kathy. A staged video was released online of an office worker freaking out to help Market the movie virally it was apparently a pretty huge success. But also due to Beckman Betov's popularity in Russia, special care was taken with the localization there. It was translated by author Sergei Lukyanenko, who wrote the book of Nightwatch and Daywatch that he had adapted as his previous two movies. And rather than use subtitles or on-screen text, CG was used to translate in-world English into Russian. You know, for signs and documents and things. Famous Russian actors, most of whom had been in Night and Daywatch, were chosen to do the voiceover for the characters. And a specially localised Russian version of the song The Little Things was done for the ending, still sung by Danny Elfman, just in Russian. The film was originally set for release on the 28th of March 2008, but Universal was so impressed with it that they thought it could compete in the American summer, and it ultimately released in the United States on the 27th of June, 2008. Its widest release there was in 3,185 theatres, and it opened number two at the box office against Wally. It was a financial success. It made $342 million worldwide on a $75 million budget, and it was the 15th highest grossing film of 2008. It remains, at the time of this recording, the 436th highest grossing film of all time. It was released on July the 31st in Australia. Its widest release here was in 257 theatres and it released number two at the box office against The Bank Job. We are responsible for $7.1 million of its gross. The film was warmly received by critics. It has a 71% Rotten Tomatoes score. The critics' consensus there reads, Wanted is stylish, energetic popcorn fare with witty performances from Angelina Jolie playing an expert assassin, James McAvoy and Morgan Freeman that helped to distract from its absurdly over-the-top plot. Audiences mostly agreed. They gave it a B-plus cinema score. The film ended up on a few awards dockets, including, believe it or not, the Oscars. It was nominated for a couple of technical awards at the Oscars for sound mixing and sound editing. Okay. Although it won neither. It was also nominated at the MTV Movie Awards for Best Female Performance for Angelina Jolie, Best Kiss for The Kiss Between Angelina Jolie and James McAvoy, and Best What the Fuck Moment for the the looped shot at the end where Angelina Jolie kills everyone than herself. Yeah. It was also nominated at the Teen Choice Awards, which seems mildly inappropriate, <laughs> as the Choice Summer Movie Action Adventure. Given the film's success, a sequel was quickly green-lighted. It was going to have a new story from Malar, but it struggled to get any traction. Fox was originally set to return, but then Angelina Jolie pulled out in 2010, and that really seemed to stunt the momentum of the project. 
Multiple drafts were written, but it still hasn't gone anywhere. Beckman Betov still wants to make it, though, but he now thinks it would be a good idea to make it a screen life movie. You know, one of those movies like Unfriended or Searching, where it's all done in the the desktop of a computer? Because he thinks he thinks that's how assassins would work now. They'd work with drones or something. He's actually become like weirdly obsessed with screen life stuff. Like <laughs> that's like most of his recent projects. He's a producer as well as a director and he's involved in searching. I think he's got like a stake in the company that, that does a lot of that. I think he might, I'm not sure on that. But but yeah, a lot of his more recent projects are screen life movies. And uh I would argue to Beckman Bedoff that that's actually probably not what anyone who likes Wanted wants to see out of a sequel to Wanted. No. But you know, you do you guy. You keep trying to make that work. <laughs> Although, you know, Searching was a fantastic movie, but still. He yes, I'm just looking at his uh his resume here. He's a producer on R hashtag J which is, I believe, a screen life version of Romeo and Juliet. I could see how that could be done. Would it be good? I don't know. It kind of tracks. Yeah, let me see if I can find the proper like, list if here. If you disperse that with like news footage, that sort of thing, you could implement the, the chorus stuff in pretty interestingly. Yeah, that's him. He's a producer on that. He's a producer on both of the Unfriended movies. He's a producer on Searching. He produced... And directed a movie called Profile, which is a screen life movie about a British journalist basically contacting a member of the Islamic State for a story. Oh. Hmm? He is a producer on the upcoming Searching sequel. As far as I can see, quite a quite a number of other movies as well. Hmm. So yeah, he's weirdly all in on the screen life genre. <laughs> Good for him though. He's found something that he really enjoys. I for one haven't seen anything that's screen life thus far, I don't think. I would feel weird watching it on a television. I feel like that's something to watch on a either a desktop or on a laptop, just to get the vibe of the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that. Searching is absolutely fantastic. I'll have to check it out. But anyways, why don't you start us off here, Harley, because I, steepling my fingers like Mr. Burns, I, I assigned you Excellent. the task of reading the wanted miniseries knowing having read the plot summary that you would most likely hate it uh and so tell us a little bit about that experience okay so i decided to read it after we finished the movie okay. not beforehand i really didn't have the time prior to that to read it you probably if you had read it beforehand you probably would have been like i don't want to watch this movie <laughs> yeah probably okay there's a genre of comic book story that I like to call the bastard spawn of Watchmen. So Watchmen was a incredibly seminal work by Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore that deconstructed the idea of the superhero, that deconstructed the idea of the supervillain and what a world like that would actually look like to the people on the ground. Watchmen is a masterpiece. It's a masterwork. And pretty much I've liked every spin-off and adaptation of the work thus far. Watchmen has a lot going for it. Another one of the bastard spawn of Watchmen is The Boys, which I despise the book and I love the TV show because they have two different ideas about what that should be. Wanted is yet another of this ill. I found it repugnant. It's probably the best word for it. I understand what Millar was getting at. Millar is Scottish. He has a very interesting idea about what superheroes are, what a world with superpowered beings would look like. Yeah, he was saying something like that on the behind the scenes. He's talking about how he comes at it from a very different perspective because it's such an American genre. Yeah. 
and he, that he likes to come in and undercut that and poke at it. Yeah, it's, it's very much like, he's Scottish, so he wasn't really part of the British invasion of comic books that folks like oh, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman were, but the Scottish have a different vibe to the English when it comes to comic books as well. There's more brutality involved in a lot of the stories, and it's very interesting in that regard how comic book writing varies from region to region. In fact, I can even mark some differences between American comic book writing and Australian comic book writing, when you get to writers like Tom Taylor. But the book is brutal and repugnant on purpose, and I get, theoretically, where Millar is coming from. You're not supposed to enjoy yourself reading this book. He is explicitly stated as much. He finds the stuff he wrote to be awful, but he stands by the story because that's the idea. Where I differ from Millar is, I still just don't like it. If, if I'm engaging with an artistic work, I'm intending to enjoy it. There's a difference between something like the wanted comic book, which is brutal and petty and cruel and crass and mean, frankly ugly in a lot of ways, and something like Mad God, which is an exploration into shit, bile, and death that is associated with being a living being. Summed up in that beautiful two words, oh no. The difference is about execution, you know? The book came out in 2003. It was that weird, truly bizarre period of time in comic books history. We were going from traditional forms of art where things would literally be drawn by hand only to get reproduced by like photocopiers and whatnot, to be like cleaned up by teams of artists. We had started developing digital art techniques. You can see a lot of the experimentation done by people like Frank Miller in The Dark Knight Returns 2, and how it doesn't work. Did, doesn't that comic book basically look like it's written in crayon? <laughs> I wouldn't say it looks like it's written in crayon. I would say it looks like it was illustrated by someone who was starting to get the hang of Photoshop and paint, but didn't quite nail it. It just turns out like really, really bizarre. I would compare a lot of the art in the book to some of the art in something like The Boys. Detailed? You could tell a lot of time went into it. And the fact I find a lot of it disgusting is the point, but I find it disgusting nonetheless. It's got that weird vibe to it that always rubs me the wrong way. I've recently gotten way more into a weirder impressionistic sort of ways to illustrate. If you look at stuff like Tim Sale's work in Long Halloween and Dark Victory, I love that stuff. I used to be vehemently against it. But that's where I kind of am now on my journey. But I'm skirting around the point that everyone who shows up in the book is awful, terrible, and I hate them. <laughs> and doing away with a vast deal of the harsher elements of the book were a very, very good thing. Because that book cannot, I repeat, cannot be turned into a movie. It cannot be done. Well, here is where I want to transition into our, our conversation of what we've gotten, because I think that, like I mentioned when I was talking about Dr. Horrible, I think the point that it comes out, 2008, is at this sort of weird liminal space in the journey of the comic book movie mm -hmm. where we've gotten Batman Begins. And I think that's a really crucial moment because that's sort of the beginning of the, the grim, dark aesthetic. The idea that Hollywood realizes for the first time that actually we can make this really serious take on superheroes that treats the idea of superheroes with deadly seriousness. I, de 
I think, I mean, no matter what you think of the Watchmen movie, I think it is, we only get the Watchmen movie because Batman Begin worked. Oh, yeah, for certain. And comics had hit that point much, much before that. The works yeah. of Frank Miller, Dog Day Returns, you've got Mark Millar's uh, time at Marvel writing The Ultimates, which I have my own kettle fish against that book. Uh, the best thing to come out of Ultimates is Ultimate Spider-Man, and consequently Miles Morales. Doesn't Hulk eat people in that series? Yeah, it's the wasp, and you see him do it. It's not my, it's not my thing. But Mark Millar also came back to Marvel to do Civil War. Mm. That was him, and that's a great story. I'm not against Mark Millar entirely. Perhaps you we, yeah, Kingsman. I get the impression that the Kingsman comic is also a bit harder edged. Perhaps we yeah. just need Mark Millar filtered down through other people's input. <laughs> oh, for sure. But like, Civil War is a fantastic book. I stand behind that. Mm. Mark Millar is also responsible for one of my favourite DC Elseworld stories, Superman Red Sun. He's a really good writer. I just think that his best work is not his original work. Mm. I do need to check out some more of his image stuff, like Jupiter's Legacy, because I feel like that's much more my speed. He's also responsible for Kick-Ass. Yeah. He has had truly so much of his work adapted. Well, yeah, he's, he's owned, his company is owned by Netflix now. He works for Netflix. Yeah. So they publish his new comics and like they're published with an eye of of seeing them adapted into the screen. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of the stuff he's got in the pipeline in a minute. But I think, like I was saying, I, I think what we're seeing in 2008 is the very first time that... Superhero movies or comic book movies were starting to be seen as, okay, this isn't just for kids. Yeah. It isn't just something that you take the 10-year-olds to see because they like the Saturday morning cartoon shows based on the characters. It can be an all-ages kind of thing. It can have stuff to say, which is, I mean, it's a very reductive viewpoint to view the old Tim Burton Batman movies or the old Superman movies as somehow intellectually lesser than the more modern superheroes. But I do think that that was the very reductive view yeah. was they they were children's movies made for children and we're just starting to get into in 2008 something you know batman begins triggered it but i think that x-men prepared the way for it which was something that could actually have something to say and have ideas to it and be a little grim and dark and mm. and then of course immediately following that you have the knock-on effect of marvel and the MCU absolutely taking superheroes to, like, the mega mainstream. Yeah. yeah. So I think that 2008 and this period that, that the Wanted movie comes out in and the Watchmen movie, which is an episode in and of itself, they're taking place in this sort of interesting liminal space mm. where it's a, it's a moment of experimentation, it's a moment of them trying new things, but it's also a moment of them not really going as hard as they would if they were doing them now. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I think you, you say that you, you don't think that the the want the wanted comic could be adapted. I agree with you, but I think it would bear much more resemblance to its original form if it were being made now than oh, it did back like, then. Absolutely. And we live in a world where the boys exist. Yes. It would, yeah, you're right. It would, it would, it would resemble the boys. It would be something along those lines in terms of tone and in terms of, I suppose, edginess. In terms of totally transforming the plot, basically away from being supervillains into assassins. I mean, they're they're explicitly murderers and rapists in the comics. The main character is one. Yeah. So, and, and they probably wouldn't go that far. If they were doing it today, but like they would absolutely, they would, I think, be more comfortable with giving the James McAvoy character harder edges because I think it's 
it's walking this very strange line where it doesn't quite know how to how unlikable he's supposed to be. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't seem to know whether it's whether it wants to do a commentary on the character like Fight Club or whether it wants to be wish fulfillment like what a certain type of audience member thinks Fight Club is. Yeah, and I fully agree with you. That is not explicitly clear in the movie. It's made explicitly clear in the book. I've talked about my issue with like that as a goal in the past, but where the movie comes into it is removing a lot of the harshest shit from the comic does work in the movie's benefit as a commercial product, as something you sit down and actually enjoy. Uh, instead of begrudgingly sit through. So I am 100% for all the changes made, just to make it more of an experience I was willing to have. Yeah. I think that they could have found a clearer, more delineated ideological through line, though. Something yeah. to say. A greater opinion about what it is that the movie is okay, talking about. Let's let's talk about the fraternity as a thing. Because they're in... Okay, so what... Their entire thing is, is that a group of weavers way back when decided that they would be the ones to... Well, no, they they uncovered the code that was always in the, the, the textile factories of the world. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Harley, but, like, the magic loom isn't in no, the no, no. book in any fashion. Like, this is its own, like, weird fever dream of an idea. Yeah, I never read during this movie, the loom to be magic, right? I read it as a weird idea of random chance and them reading patterns into this utterly random system as being instructions from fate. I never read it as explicitly magic, but rather something they read as a sort of like a Sort of like cultish doctrine. I like that reading, but I also don't think it's supported by the movie because it's that's an incredible stretch that every single time they see those patterns in it, it always works out to being a name of an actual person that they can find well, and locate. Well, also, to be fair, Sloane, the Morgan Freeman character... Only recently. They've been around for thousands of yeah. years. And see, the reason why he did that was because when he was decoding the things from the loom, it showed up with the names of the people in the fraternity. And there is also an alternate opening yeah. for the uh, for the movie that is included on the disc, which is actually set in ancient times, which makes fairly explicit that the loom is legit. Like, it, it depicts a member of the fraternity preventing a plague outbreak by killing patient zero before he has the chance to infect anyone. What I am getting from this entire thing is that a god or some kind of presence is speaking through the loom what what i brush up against is like the convoluted way that they have to get there so they have to decode it into binary and then from binary into english which is not what they would have been using way back when they started as a fraternity or okay they should be called the weavers right that's a much cooler because they weave fate sort of name for their organization the fraternity is the name from the comic exactly that's the fraternity is the name of the comic there you go like i know but the weavers <laughs> are the are, are the cooler option i mean the fox is still called fox even though she's white instead of african-american yeah and is also not a fox and is also not psychotic like she is in the comic yeah well, different way 
I don't know. Basically, they're a cult. Yeah. Basically, they're a cult. Basically, what they do is they get James McAvoy and they program him into being an, a hitman. I don't know if they're a cult. If they are. They read to me more like a. And see, now that I think of it, this almost actually starts to seem like subtext. They seem more almost like the Central Intelligence Agency yeah. or something like that. That there is sort of an ideological bent to them, an idea of justice that is then corrupted by the people in charge to take out, you know, persona non gratis for their own benefit. Mm. I mean, actually, you might be able to weave in a sort of a political patriarch style yeah, thing. That they're, they're finding a guy whose life is shit, they're radicalizing him, and they're sending him out as a trained killer. Yeah. Literally a trained killer. He's on the top of a train when he kills his first blow. Like, and here's the oh. other thing about <laughs> ha! how Got the fraternity ya. operate as well. I made this joke when we were watching the movie, but they're kind of like hazing him into the fraternity. Yeah, it's, it's like he's getting jumped into a gang. It's like oh, this weird idea of like breaking him down piece by piece, but also showing him new ways to go. They explicitly state that when he's been having anxiety attacks, that's not anxiety, what he's been having. It's like this sort of this like special it's adrenaline rush, adrenaline rush he gets that would like explode the heart of any normal human being, but it slows down perception for him, so he's able to do like ridiculous nonsense. I'm seeing a lot of similarities between the way that they give this information to to Wesley and the way that a cult would be like, oh, it's nothing wrong with you, it's everyone else. They just don't understand how special you are. There's a great deal of cult indoctrination techniques that they're using yeah. to bring him into the fold, essentially. But, and it's interesting because just like, well, obviously there's that familial connection that we'll get to when we discuss Wesley's character, but there's a sense that they are finding someone who is philosophically and spiritually adrift. Sure, he's got a job, but... He doesn't have any kind of good relationships with people. He hates the people he works with. He hates his life. And that is sort of the kind of people that cults and secret services try to look to and contort into their own sort of weapon. I doubt secret services are explicitly looking for yeah, those. They're, they're probably not looking. They're, they're, you're right that they're looking for people without. That's the whole thing, isn't it? That intelligence services they tend to like if you've got few roots that yeah. that is helpful for them i don't think they're quite looking for the level of like hatred of the world and everything around them but well i'm talking like the cia starting coups in places and shit they they search yeah. for the people who are unaffiliated and liable to be turned into extremists basically the people who can be blamed as lone wolves yeah well well even the whole breaking breaking him down and building him up again. It's a very militaristic concept. Yeah. Mm. It's very boot camp. And the whole idea of, you know, this discussion of having to take things on faith, you know, we give you the name of the loom that the loom gives you. You don't know what this person did, but trust us when we tell you it's in the greater good. I mean, that is part of being a, a soldier or a spy or an intelligence agency is you don't the people on the ground don't necessarily have the full picture. You know, they are being given instruction and, and, and it is the done thing if you're in the military, if you're in the intelligence services, to follow orders mm. because you assume that the people 
who are giving those orders know more than you do about the situation. And, you know, there are downsides to that. And obviously that has been abused over the course of the history of human civilization. But on like, like on a basic fundamental level, that is, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting just to see where the different members of the fraternity, these different characters come to philosophically rest. Like we've got someone like Sloane who is willing to, for the sake of the fraternity continuing to exist, bend, whereas other characters like Fox would prefer to break. But he's already bent before. Well, that's, I suppose that comes to an interesting question, doesn't it? It never tells us whether the Loom kicked out their names before or after. Uh, Sloane had started rigging the hits. But here's the thing. Bloom was done with them, wasn't wasn't it? It was done with the fraternity, technically. Or at least that chapter was, of it. Yeah, done with that wing. Because it, it does seem... To, the presence of Terence Stamp and the additional second Loom would seem to indicate that there is there are other versions of them all yeah. over the world. And that's such an interesting idea that the lo- Loom... I don't know if Sloane was becoming corrupt before the loom spat out the names i think the loom preempted that the unavoidability of fate there's a whole idea of like looms as symbolism for the weaving of destiny predeterminism this is symbolism that has existed since the ancient greeks yeah yeah there are those ideas of the uh, the threads of fate and you know when a person line is cut that's when they die you know yeah and there's like there's a lot going on with that sort of imagery I especially love how at the end, after Wesley has done his rat bombing, which is its own thing, in the loom room- I'm sorry, but those rats accumulate throughout the premises way too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> like, they and they come out of that garbage truck and they're like on the top floor of that building way too quickly. Yeah. Those rats- those rats were 100% down for this nonsense. Do you think Do you think he sat all of those rats down <laughs> and showed them the blueprints and was like, look, team A through to team C, go through this area, and then on and on, he had, like, a specific, like, rat team six kind of thing to be like, go to directly to the loom room. That, that's like a day, <laughs> strapping that that's many bombs more than a day, my guy. He has... I, I bet you he hired a bunch of vagrants to be like, hey, do you want 50 bucks? <laughs> Strap a watch to a rat. Do that for an hour, and I'll give you a hot meal. He also bought, truly, so much peanut butter. Mm. It's ridiculous. Yes, strap a watch to a peanut butter-covered rat. Uh, in the loom room, <laughs> the whole loom is, like, destroyed. The strands of fate are everywhere, like this sick, distorted web, if yeah. you will. That's cool imagery. But at the same time, is it a subversion of fate or is it fate coming true? The loom turned out their names and in the end they all died anyway. And the interesting thing is, I love the character that Angelina Jolie is playing here. Oh no, but Wesley's name wouldn't have come up on the loom. That's Sloane's bullshit. Yeah, Fox is a true believer in the original interpretation of the fraternity that they follow what the loom says to the absolute letter. And in doing so, her name got spat out, and the rest of those people standing in a circle's names got spat out, and it just follows that, yep, well, the loom said so, bang, and she kills herself because she truly believes in what she's 
do it. Are the curved bullets in the comics, Harley? The shooting the wings off the fly thing is? Yeah. Obviously, that's one of like the major things that was translated. Translated quite well, I must say. Oh yeah, and, and like the curving the bullets thing, that became a meme when this movie yeah. came out, didn't it? Well, it is incredible, isn't it, that the, the most memorable thing about this movie, the thing that has had the most lasting impact culturally, mm-hmm. has been the thing that has been something that wasn't in the comics. Yeah. yeah, I for one think the curving of the bullets thing, and frankly, all of the action we get here, is bloody incredible. It's rad as hell. Oh yeah, it's it's. It's so extraordinarily over the top and and well done. I mean, that train sequence is just a truly fantastic set piece. I mean, it's not just good action. I mean, it is great action. You all of the jumping and the falling and the shooting and the punching. Shooting the bullets, like using bullets to deflect bullets. That's incredible shit. The car, like, driving up, jumping into the side of the train, and then it derailing. The car chase at the beginning, when the car jumps, slams into the side of the bus, knocks the bus over, drives across the side of the knocked-over bus, and keeps driving. And it's like, who thinks of that? Wesley is still, like speed running the entire fraternity's facility. Yeah, yeah, like he's trying to speed run Hotline Miami or something. That's incredible! But underneath all of that, beneath the awesome of it, there's just really striking imagery and yeah. real, real beauty to the framing as well. I mean, that Fox doing the circular ring of death at the end, that's a beautifully handled thing, especially yeah. the way that you see her go down in the in the background. Yeah. But I, I love also the... The shot of Wesley shooting out the window of the train and falling down into the ravine. Mm. I think that's really well done. How he looks at Cross's body as they, like, fall down into the water below. Yeah. There are these moments of real intense, sort of interesting artistic choices. And, And truly, all of the best visual language in this movie is from the movie. Like, the best visual shit is not from the comic. That's that's very non-traditional for an adaptation. At least in my most recent experience. Well, I mean, this is barely an adaptation, though. Really. It's got names from it. Yeah, I do want to ask that question. What is the point of calling this Wanted? If you're going to deviate from this story... Like, there was that there was that legendary court case, right? That sort of settled a whole lot of things in terms of copyright. That I think it was George A. Romero tried to sue someone for the idea of zombies in a shopping mall. Mm-hmm. And the court found that that was too vague and general a concept to be able to be copyright infringement. And there is nothing in this story that is more specific than that, than the idea of zombies in a shopping mall. It is all stuff that they could very easily have just made an original movie. I've read the book. There's just enough. It's like just enough. Of moments from the book translated into scenes, lines of dialogue. Oh, sure, certain little details. But in terms of the overall skeleton of the plot... The general structure of the plot, find out your dad was one of the greatest hitmen in the world and then becoming the greatest hitman in the world, that's the same thing. Well, yeah, but it's also the same thing in a whole bunch of other things. I mean, it's it's not totally dissimilar to Harry Potter. Harry, <laughs> your dad was a wizard. Now come to wizard school where we're going to indoctrinate you into this cult of wizards. Exactly! What what I'm trying to get out is, in terms of how far an adaptation can just honestly take the ball and run away, yeah. this is as minimal as still counts. Shoot the wings off this Cornish pixie. 
I'm questioning. <laughs> but what I'm do- what I'm doing here is I'm questioning the simple business sense of giving Mark Millar a check for I presume a decent amount of money when they could have just made this exact same movie, mm. changed a few things around, and been fine. Yeah. I don't know. It's questionable. I honestly don't know what to tell you. There is no business sense in that. Unless this was part of a broader deal. What production company handled Wanted? Universal. Well, Universal is where it ended up. But I mean, it was Mark Platt was the producer who got the rights to it. Okay. What production company ended up... Relativity Media and Spyglass Entertainment were the big ones yep. on this. Uh, so what companies ended up with Kick-Ass? Marv and Fox. Yeah, Marv, Plan B Entertainment, and Lionsgate. I don't think I it don't tracks. think it was a deal, but it's like that's the only thing I could even think of. Well, at a certain point, you're, it's it's a common question, isn't it? What's the point of making those Resident Evil movies and calling them Resident Evil when there's nothing Resident Evil mm. about them? Mm. You know, they're just zombies. Brand recognition is the but name that's of the game. The crazy thing. Wanted is not even one of his better works. Resident Evil is one thing, but is Wanted really going to get people in the seats of the like, Cineplex? I don't like think so. Resident Evil has a cult following. I don't see Wanted doing the exact same thing, pulling in the exact same numbers. Especially since they very clearly changed so much. I don't know, it's weird. Maybe a bunch of people were like, hey, we want to see, we want to see Angelina Jolie shoot guns. Okay, David O'Hara at the beginning. David O'Hara. What? It's it's like he stepped off of the set of Doomsday to do his bits here and then walk back onto the set of Doomsday. He has been in truly so much of the shit we've covered already. To the point where, watching it, I was not able to hold my tongue and I was literally like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> my mum was sitting right beside me and even she was confused. Like, yeah, he's he's been in Wanted, Doomsday, and Harry Potter. He was the guy that I think... It's the one that Harry... He's the person who Harry wore the face of in the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, but it's like, I like David Harbour as an actor. I think the movie loses (laughs) one of its strongest facets at the beginning. I think it's Mm. so funny how he basically... What a waste. (laughs) Almost like like it is the only scene out of the movie directed by the Wachowski sisters. He runs like an anime character. (laughs) Smashes... Through the window, like he's in fucking Sin City, lands on the other building, having killed the people, and then he does his Looney Tune shit. Like an actor hitting his mark, he stands on an X, pre-prepared for him, and then gets his head blown off by a man with a sniper rifle at least ten leagues away. That itself is a reference to the comic, not the visuals of it, but. In the comic, it is stated that uh, the killer, who is Wesley's father, had uh, was so good a marksman. He's a translation of characters like Deathstroke and Deadshot, uh, but like with all the sort of like identifying numbers shaved off, um, that he was able to assassinate someone with a sniper round two cities away. Um, it's it's just a reference to that. That's not how gravity works. No, no, it's not. But since when have they cared about how gravity works in this movie? It's such an over-the-top moment, I almost imagined the monkey from Speed Racer walking onto onto the set and being like, good shot, old chap, and then walking away. Can I ask you, because I have seen this movie before and it's been too long for me to really remember what my reaction was, but at what 
point did you guys clock on to the fact that Sloane and Fox were not to be trusted? Uh, the moment they started beating the shit out of him. Pretty much immediately. <laughs> Pretty much immediately. I was like, these people are super dodgy. So did you anticipate that Cross would end up being, I suppose, a, the good guy? I hadn't anticipated that exactly, but I knew there was more to it. But the moment mm. that the moment that Cross said what well, got like really close to Wesley and said, Wesley, I'm like, mm, there it is. That's his dad. Wanna play catch son? Um, <laughs> Wanna play catch the bullet? I love that when they go into his weird creeper apartment where he's been watching Wesley, he's got like these stalker photos that he's framed. <laughs> For, like, behind bushes and things. I love the idea that he's getting them developed. He goes down to the shops, gets them developed professionally, and the guy's just like... He goes down to Kinko's, and the guy's like, I don't know if I should be doing this. Oh, no, don't worry. That's don't my worry, son. It's my son. What? That, that... <laughs> okay, that might sound worse. What? That, that adult who looks like he's only ten years younger than you is your son? Yes. Don't um, worry. Also, something I did anticipate... We've got Chris Pratt here. Mm-hmm. This gets smacked in the face by a ergonomic keyboard. All right, but you know. But I do have to say, like, the action is really the best thing in this movie. It is, yeah. Because I think that whenever they start actually getting into some of the weirder ideological things, mm. I mean, the problem the problem is is that we're, it's it's not necessarily a problem in terms of presentation. It's a problem in terms of character art because I never really get. I never really feel like I understand where Wesley ends up as a character. Yeah. I understand where he starts. I understand the sort of power and the feeling of belonging he starts to feel in the fraternity. But I don't really get how we're supposed to take him as a character at the end of the movie. When he's sitting there, you know, talking to the audience. What the fuck have you done lately? I haven't killed anyone. Yeah, I'm not really sure where he's ended up as a character. Has has he learned anything, or is he just the same shitty guy he was in the middle of the movie? But focused in a different direction. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I'm never really sure of that. Whereas, you know, it's the Fight Club narrative without the attention to detail, because the Fight Club narrative is that Edward Norton starts in a very similar place to the way that James McAvoy starts in this movie. He joins this cult, he realises that the cult is super bad and then rejects it and, you know, becomes a person again. I don't really see that arc played out properly here. That is also one of the structural things present in the comic. On second thought, there's a lot structurally that is much the same. The comic ends with Wesley having not changed all he is is the best killer on the planet now since his father is dead and he's the top shit of the worst food chain imaginable and it just goes from there with wesley talking shit directly to the audience Mm. Uh, which you know same here in the book in the film film handles it a lot better because you know at least wesley isn't a true monster, or at least a complete monster, uh, just most of one in the film. I think it's just so... It's like, it's trying to be that thing of aspirational, but why should we aspire to be... Exactly. A dickhead like this who kills people without knowing why? That's a good way of putting it. It, it wants us to find joy in where he's ended up. It's like, what the fuck have you done lately? Uh, I haven't had the shit kicked out of me. I haven't killed anyone. 
and all of my friends are still around me and not dead by their own hands. So I haven't spent 72 hours and almost $3 million covering rats with peanut butter and strapping <laughs> watches to them. Uh, I don't think he was using the peanut butter on the rats, merely to get them no, he was into put, the dump he, truck. No, he put peanut butter on the rats. You see rats covered in peanut butter okay. as they spill out of the garbage Truly truck. Truly spilling out of it. Truly spilling out, like like a biblical plague descending on this building. Like, I, I do get the power of aspirational storytelling. <laughs> Becoming self-determining, in a sense, is, you know, the vibe I think they were going for. He just ends up as big an arsehole than he started as. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's a weird mismanagement of the Luke Skywalker arc and the Edward Norton in Fight Club arc yeah. rolled into one. The Edward Norton arc, if you don't take the comic book sequels to Fight Club into account. Can I ask what you guys make of the Russian guy in the healing center? Because I think that bizarre. I feel like there's an implication there that he knows more about what Sloane's doing than anyone else does, at yeah. least at that point. Mm, yeah. Like, he seems to have, I don't know, he just seems to be aware of what's happening He's more. the most kind of suspicious of all the sketchy people he ends up knowing, but suspicious in, like, a good way? It's, it's a comment that McAvoy makes to him shortly after they meet. He says to him, what the hell did they do to you? Mm. Maybe he can, like, see behind all the shit, in a sense. Yeah. Maybe he's... Because technically, the only one with access to the loom should be Sloane. Mm. Maybe he has access to the loom because of his relationship with, like, the rats and shit. Can I ask, why did they take him with them to hunt Cross? So he can get shot. But for what purpose? I mean, for the narrative purpose, obviously, so he can get shot. But why is Sloane being like, okay, because like, there are a bunch of other people in the Brotherhood. There are a bunch of other people in the Brotherhood that we never, ever spend any time with we see him in the courtyard there are more people in that that circle at the end than we actually spend any time with in the movie but sloan's like yeah fox you you also take the weirdo from the infirmary i'm sure he'll be helpful like <laughs> you know does he odd. carry around one of those wax bars on his back what purpose does he have out in the field um unless he is supposed to be a medic i don't know what is he gonna let it come to you, put a rat on your chest, and tell the rat to dig the bullet out. Oh, who knows. I don't know how much more we have to discuss here. The score's okay. But Tone Stamp is here. Yeah, that seems like... And I think he even said in an interview that that was, like, set up for a potential sequel. Yeah. Rather than anything that was actually needed within the movie itself. But it's always fun to see Tone yeah. Stamp. Keeps him working. Can I ask what you think of the Danny Elfman song that ends the movie, The Little Things? Pretty good. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I'd have to listen to it again. I moved on to reading the comic after the movie ended. Woe is me. I liked the use of that Nine Inch Nails song. Every day is exactly the same by Nine Inch Nails. I thought that was used really well. Well, do we have anything else to add here, or would you like to move on? Yeah, I think we're kind of done with our discussion on the film. Well, we do have some entry in, in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. For the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide segment is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the user-created IMDb parents guide for the movie in question. This week, it is all extreme overreactions in the violence and gore section. Uh, there are three entries here. Again, violence and gore. An older man tells a younger man that he has superpowers caused by an increased pulse rate. <laughs> 
I guess I can see a weird, twisted way of getting to, like, blood and gore from that, because blood is what's being pumped, and in your mind, the image of that, you are seeing blood, I guess? A man experiences several nightmares where everyone around him moves in slow motion, and he always wakes up with a gasp. This is my favourite one, though. It's the last one. An unkempt man in a dirty sleeveless shirt and showing underarm and chest hair bites his fingernails and spits them onto the floor. (laughs) In in what category is that? Violence and gore. I would argue that's more in disturbing scenes, but sure. Well, I love how, how he mentions the dirty sleeveless shirt and showing underarm and chest hair as if that's... That's a factor in the the violence and intensity of the sequence. Go to any Outback pub in Australia and you will see exactly that. It's not blood and gore, my friend. So now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is probably... Tamor Bekmambetov. I'm a little, I was a little reluctant to choose him just because I'm, as a general rule, I don't like it when adapt, when adaptations change so much about a work. I start to question the point and think it's not good practice, but with this, I'll make an exception because I do think that from the sounds of it, the changes that were made were right, but also because everything that really works about this movie works because of Bedman Bedov. It's the way he directs the action sequences. It's the way he visualizes the stunts. It's the style that he brings to it. I mean, these are really well done elements of the film. Honestly, in a, in a, in a movie actually where I didn't find too many particular standouts that I could really think of for my MVP category, I think that Beckman Bedoff, as, as a representative for what I like best about this movie, he's the one I'm going to go with. In terms of following on from that is my favorite scene or sequence, which is the, the train action sequence, the derailment of the train and the fight on board, right up through really the reveal of Wesley's parentage and his fall into the ravine. I think that's, I mean, that's the part of the movie that I always think of when I remember it. It is a really well done sequence. It's exhilarating. It's got great stunts. It's so over the top, but also it's really intense. And it's just got, again, I love some of the visual choices that are made. I love that shot of Wesley shooting out the glass underneath him and falling in. Like, this movie just looks good. Yeah, and in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow, I've actually... I don't actually think there are many spots for him here that make a lot of sense, but I think one that does is the role that David O'Hara plays. The random guy that gets gunned down in the first few minutes, but gets to be pretty awesome beforehand. I think John Lithgow's, like, if he if he did his, like, you know, serious Dawa tone that he can he has the ability to do, mm. uh, I think that he would fit well into what that character also, is. Also, you I would think. see him anime run and... Exactly, exactly. There's a, there's a lot of pros to this. Uh, there's a lot of good things that come from him being there. Uh, you get him in a good action scene, you get him in some awesome stunts, but also I think it would... It would lend a little bit of legitimacy to the idea, the, the con that Morgan Freeman is selling, basically, that this guy was James McAvoy's father. If it was, like, a notable actor like John Lithgow, mm. perhaps that would 
land more. Perhaps you buy it a little bit more. Yeah, you'd be um, like, oh, I can see yeah. James McAvoy being his son. That you're, f- that you're focused on John Lithgow more than you are on Thomas Creshman, and I think that could uh, that could work well. I would have to say my MVP. Just let me get the name up. Is Bachman Betov. Everything that works about this movie is because of his adaptational choices. What the choices, what choices script writers make, and what choices he made for the visual language of the film. The movie holds up in terms of its fight scenes, its choreography, and just how gorgeous it ends up looking. Like the whole train sequence is shot incredibly well. Wesley storming the fraternity's base is excellent, and. It all works because of him, I think. Uh, I think he has a particular talent for action, and that's kind of a shame considering how obsessed we, he is with like the what? What's the genre called? Or filming? Ah, uh, screen life. Yeah, it's a shame he's become so obsessed with screen life because he's kind of wasted on that. You know what I mean? Mm. This movie. It certainly t- it ties his hands in terms of the stylism. Yeah, this movie walked so Kingsman could run, and so John Wick could soar through the air like the angel that it is. I suppose well, so. He he ended up not having a great run after Wanted. He did Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and then the Ben Hur remake okay. and neither of them landed, so Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter I still enjoy because of how buck wild it is. Oh sure, but in terms of like It's not a critical darling, no. No, and they underperformed in terms of their financial success. Yeah. So I think that that But he does have a particular talent for action, and this is truly a showcase of that talent. My favorite scene or sequence has to be Wesley storming base. It's just really well choreographed, incredibly shot, and you get some of the most inventive action in the movie. And plus, you get to see all my rat friends do their thing. Who I would replace with John Lithgow? I do get what you're saying, and I'd have to agree with you, Lawson. You get him in the David O'Hara role. He he adds a sense of legitimacy to it. You get to see him doing some truly dope shit. I was originally thinking getting him as Cross, as McAvoy's real father, but that would kind of give away the game a little too soon. If you see, like, big-name actor as this character who's meant to be kind of mysterious, it kills the tension, and kills the reveal dead. So, I agree, he has to play that hitman at the beginning. Plus, I want to see him do that badass stunt where he jumps out that window. It's dope as hell. So, I give my MVP to the stunt crew on this movie, all 86 of them. They really make those sequences of action really shine. And there's a lot of great action here. Also, mad props to cinematographer Mitchell. Amonsen, who frames the action in a very, very good way. For my favorite scene or sequence, it is the siege on the fraternity's base at the end of the movie. Because you see just a bit of everything, you know, you got your rats covered in peanut butter and bombs over here. You've got James McAvoy speedrunning the place like he's on GOG. You've got just supreme levels of action, and you've got that fantastic scene where Angelina Jolie takes out a room of people and herself with one bullet, which is ridiculous, but also a brilliant ending for that character. And for who I would get John Lithgow to play, it's complicated, because I do see where you two are coming from with getting him replacing David O'Hara, but part of me also wants him as slow. Place Morgan Freeman with him, And you still get a lot of really fun stuff with John Lithgow. 
but I'm edging towards replacing David O'Hara with him. Just seeing him run like he's from Sin City and jumping through that window, firing guns, is just incredible. The real clincher for me on the decision is Sloane doesn't get an action scene. David O'Hara does. True. And really, you can't pass up. Like, Morgan Freeman is such a classy actor, you can't pass up up the opportunity to hear him call someone a motherfucker. Absolutely. (laughs) When he said it, I was like, you're not Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) That's weird. But no, it's part of me also wants to replace Angelina Jolie with John Lithgow just to see him do that, like, going onto his back when he was getting into the tunnel (laughs) on the train. Because I just feel like that would be hilarious. I don't know if that would be physically possible. Why would it? Why was it physically possible for Angelina Jolie? More flexible. Eh. Anyway. Also, I think it would be such a fun energy to make Wesley's girlfriend jealous by having him kiss John. <laughs> okay. It would make her jealous. Uh, so now we're going to put it to a vote: whether or not we are a pro-wanted podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Sure, I'll burst the balloon. I'm. I'm think saying no. I'm. Not anti, but I not pro either. I think that the it's a very fun movie. It's got a lot of great action sequences, pretty good cast. It's well shot. It's always fun and exciting to watch. But you know, it's just so muddled from a tone perspective, from an ideological perspective. It can't really figure out what it is, what it wants to say. And I, I keep coming back to what I said at the beginning. It is a movie that is trapped between two different eras of comic book movie filmmaking, yeah. and uh, it can't navigate those fissures that divide in its content well enough to justify me giving it a, a pro vote. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to say no. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's really fun. Don't get me wrong. It is very fun. We've had a lot of fun discussing it, I think, but it's not saying anything. Not really. And it's not, I'm not anti this movie, but I'm not entirely sure it deserves a place on our prestige Blu-ray line either. And I'm in full agreement with you guys. I'm not pro this, but I'm not anti this. It's not a movie that thematically is trying to say something. It's philosophy is muddled and its characters are just dickheads. (laughs) And that can be fun. It can be fun, but it doesn't have something to push it over the edge. It's not maniacal enough like Doomsday, where it's going to absolutely surprise you, and the surprise alone makes it a pro. But there's just enough great action here that you're thrilled by it when you're watching it, but it just won't stick with you for very long after. And that's okay. Like, not every movie has to be the most philosophical film ever made. It's functional, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro-wanted podcast. Aww. Now, we are going to try something new out this week, which is we're, we're test-running a new little segment that's actually going to be a bit looser and a little more freeform than the stuff that we've done before. But we've had conversations uh, off-air about... You know, the way that we wished we could include some things in our conversations that don't necessarily fit the film and TV focus of the podcast, stuff like, you know, books and video games and things. And so we are test running this week a new segment, which is sort of like a a last 
last looks or last word kind of thing, something else that we've been fascinated about or or interested in over the course of the week. We'll probably come up for some with some pithy name for it at a later date. But uh, I'm all out of pith. It's all um, it's all going to. That was so stupid, John. It's all. It's going to be a little more freeform and a little looser than some of the other segments. Dirty little pith boys. (laughs) Shut up. That's so stupid. (laughs) You're pissing me off. It's. I don't know why that's getting me. It's so dumb. It's because it sounds like Mike Tyson is saying it to you. Do you know, my mother wanted to call. My my mother wanted to call me Pierce. I was going to be Pierce Keeney. (laughs) But. My father spent like a good two weeks walking around the house doing generally Pierce-related puns as a stand-in for the word piss. And it was like, you know, I'm going to take a Pierce. I'm getting real pissed off, you know, things like that. And to be quite honest, I I thank him Mm. because he got out in front of what I have to imagine would be, (laughs) would have been uh, many years of of hearing that uh, low-effort pun made at, at High school. A much worse time at school. Mm. You can't really do anything with my name. And by God, I'm sure people tried. It is going to be a little bit looser, uh, this new segment. It's not necessarily necessarily going to be something that we do every week. We're not each going to have a thing we bring to the table every week. It's just going to be when one of us has something we want to say, we're going to say it. Well, this uh, might not even end up in the actual episode. So, hey, future Jean. Hey, past Jean. Yeah, it ended up working pretty decently, so it's staying. When you get here, oh, I think you'll know will. whether or not. I yes. think it will. Uh, this week, we're going to test run it out with a book that I have recently read called... It's a non-fiction book called The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. It's uh, written by Skip Hollinsworth, and it's about this serial killer in Austin, Texas in the 1880s who was never caught. You know, he was just running around, killing a whole bunch of people. He focused on servants a lot, black servants mostly in the the early few uh, attacks of his, but then he sort of expanded out to sort of the... It, it was always women, but it expanded out to, you know, white women, the wives of, of notable people and stuff like that. So it didn't really have a, a consistent MO in terms of the people chosen, other than, I suppose, the fact that they were women. And they were. it was just very random, very scattered. Um, and it was a really interesting little book that I recommend because, I mean, it is interesting in terms of the true crime of it because there actually is a, a school of thought that he is Jack the Ripper, that the murders stop in Austin and then about as long as it would take to comfortably relocate to England. You know, that period of time after Jack the Ripper starts killing people in Whitechapel. And actually it was a point of, um, it was being, I mean, it's a stretch. It's not a view shared by a lot of people, but it was a, actually something that the police in Whitechapel were investigating at the time of the, the Whitechapel murders. And it was something that the Austin newspapers latched onto. Um, like they were a big proponent of this theory. But also beyond the true crime stuff, it's just interesting as a a portrait of a town becoming a city, you know, a portrait of this sort of end of an era and end of the Wild West and end of the sort of old school 1800s America and into something a little more structured, a little more organised. And it, it's got a lot of flavour a lot of fine detail here that make it fun. And I've actually got a couple of quotes that I'd like to read out just because they are just fun little bits of detail. Um, 
So there is this, this is from a segment where they're talking about a wedding that was being held at the local lunatic asylum. The superintendent's daughter was getting married to the deputy superintendent. And the superintendent basically thought that this was a good opportunity to, to, to show Austin High Society all of the improvements that he'd made. Some of the guests had to have felt a little jittery as they looked around the nearly fenceless asylum. A few of them, no doubt, peered in the direction of the Cross Pits building, which that day housed 52 criminally insane lunatics, including an infamous madman named Lombard Stevens, who had sent Governor Ireland several letters vowing that he would eat the governor's brains if he was not paid $500,000. I assume that they did not pay him. <laughs> no. But then, I, I love this also because it sounds sounds like such a Texas thing. They're talking about the old sheriff before the one who was in charge when the murders happened. The problem, however, was that after Thompson had downed a few drinks, he liked to engage in what the newspapers described as promiscuous shooting. One evening, he had drunkenly risen from his seat at Millet's Opera House and shot off his pistol because he believed the performance was poorly staged. <laughs> I bet there were a bunch of critics who would like to do that exact same thing. In 1882, a year after he was elected marshal, he was forced to resign when he killed a politician in a San Antonio shootout. In 1884, <laughs> Thompson himself was shot to death in another San Antonio gunfight. Makes sense. Yeah. It's how he'd want to go out. It's how he wanted it. Gunfights gun, gun seem to have been a big part of this yeah. person's life. You know? Yeah, but there's a lot of interesting detail there that the author finds. And the story itself of the investigation some takes some twists and turns. There was this whole, like, episode where the mayor sent out for the Pinkerton's detective agency, but he hired the wrong guys by accident. He just hired some guy called Pinkerton and not, like, the proper Pinkertons. Yes! The person shows up, he's like, oh, yes, what can I do for you? I want you to catch this killer. And it's like, exactly. All of these randos turned... Well, they were detectives, but they weren't the Pinkertons. What if, like, some random dude called Pinkerton was brought in and exactly. just like, I'll do my best. But all of these randoms just turned up in Austin, and rather than, like, fess up and correct it, the mayor just, like, told them to keep it on the down low and they could still have the money if they just pretended. <laughs> like, I love that. That's a movie, my dude. That's a movie. Of making a movie where... This one guy, like a school teacher or something, goes to Austin because they've been asking for Pinkertons, and his last name's Pinkerton. And he goes there, and he actually gets close to solving it, and it's a conspiracy. I like the idea that that's that town's historical version of Rudy Giuliani's Four Seasons mishap. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yeah. Yeesh. Like, it's so, so similar. But yeah, if there's a criticism, it, I mean, it doesn't have an ending. We don't know who did it. The book never really comes up with a suspect either. Uh, it just presents the facts and it leaves. Yeah. So, But, like, that's the thing. How can you know? Yeah, exactly. I would prefer that rather than one of those, like, Jack the Ripper, you know, bargain bin books. It's like, I've solved it, everyone. He was the prince. Like, a bunch of people being like, he... I heard that he was buried in South Brisbane Cemetery. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> like, he was not part of the Freemasons. He was a syphilitic maniac who we don't know the name of. Yeah. 
But yeah, the Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. I, I recommend it if anyone's interested. I'll have to check out if there's any, like, audiobook version. If you'd like to reach us, you can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to leave episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What did you think of Wanted? Have you read the book? Did you find it as repugnant as I did? Are you glad we came? It's a reference to the boy band The Wanted and their hit song Glad We Came. Glad you came. Okay. I'm glad you interrupted me for that, John. <laughs> no one That's, gets my jokes. I'm gonna be on a high the rest of my day because of that. <laughs> I love it when Harley gets so pissy. <laughs> pissy, you mean. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> now you have to keep that in. <laughs> Anywho. Oh, it was it was staying in anyway. I am your god now. Sure. Have you seen the movie? What did you think about it? All of that in the Twitter. You can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just remember that when you're commenting, certain apps talk about the show on the whole. Some apps talk about certain episodes. So just pay attention to that. Your mileage may vary depending on what service you use. There is a new Olympic sport that exists now. At certain times, Marcus has been involved in it. Uh, beyond golf, he was also involved in recreational shooting. One of the new categories is curving bullets. New bullets have been developed so that they actually can curve. Not normally possible, is now possible now due to being run by machines. Marcus was pretty adept at that, often uh, ranking out either silver or bronze in shooting competitions. There are a lot of people better at it than him, but, you know, that was more of a recreation thing when he couldn't get out on the... Does he Golf get boss? time away from his enclosure, so, sorry, his diorama, to compete for this? And in that case, who takes his place? Well, he doesn't do it anymore since he is retiring. You know, athletes still compete. Retiring to a farm upstate, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is going to the glue factory. No. No one's being turned into glue. There is no lie of a farm upstate. There is the truth of a farm upstate where they turn people to glue. Athletes still get to compete, is kind of what I'm trying to get at here. You don't want athletes to be without, you know, what kind of makes their lives, you know? And plus, you, you still want to see human, you still want to see human excellence, uh, performing arts, and sport is part of that. And you want people to be nice and limber, to build up that lactic acid in their muscles and joints, because the glue comes out better that way. No one's being turned into glue. Yes, and Harley. That's a very inefficient method of making glue. Sure. Human corpses are turned into something else, but I'm not going to get into so, that. So, uh, so Lawson, uh, what are we doing next week? Well, I am thrilled to announce that uh, next week you can dance, you can jive, while Harley, Jean, and myself are having the time of our lives because we're going to be talking about Mamma Mia because my, my... How could we resist it? Here we go for the first time. <laughs> you guys haven't seen it. I get the impression that Harley has been willfully avoiding it. That streak will end next week because I love this movie. I love it unironically. I saw it in the cinemas when it came out. And you know the sad thing is? I'll probably love it too. Hmm. You've got to find the small... You know, we live in such a horrifying world, don't we? Things are looking pretty sticky. You know, it, it can be hard. It can be hard to turn on the news and not feel really depressed. So you've got to take the small pleasures in life where you find them, like forcing your friends to watch an ABBA musical. So 
Waterloo. Uh, so if you would like to follow along at home, you can find Mamma Mia available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Binge, Prime Video, Foxtel Now, and Stan, as well as for purchase or rental, as well as for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Telstra Fetch, and Apple TV stores. However, it is only available in 4K to stream on Stan, and in 4K for rental or purchase on the Apple and Amazon stores. Stan it is. Yep, that's very prolific. Uh, so join us next week when we cover Mamma Mia. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. going to be drinking a glass of wine while we watch that movie i will buy a bottle of wine just no, so that i can it bet no unless it's boxed wine it doesn't count <laughs> i'm not buying i think i think it would be the perfect vibe if you drank room temperature boxed wine <laughs> yeah, while watching but... Mamma Mia. <laughs> only if you do the same no i don't drink and i've already seen it i will not drink room temperature boxed wine Those days are behind me.